and welcome to episode 171 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke and we are back once again returning to our series looking at the World Wrestling Federation in the year 1992. Of course, if you heard us in our previous episode, we covered pretty much all of March and WrestleMania 8 the last time we were at this series. Uh, if you did not hear that episode, you can, of course, go back to the archives at squaredcirclegazette.podbean.com. You can go to find us on iTunes. You've got to go back and listen to the previous installment of this show specifically, because if you haven't heard that one, we spent four hours talking about all the scandal, all the trials and tribulations. Hulk Hogan is out of the World Wrestling Federation. This was the following, obviously, to our 1990 and 1991 series. Hit in 1992 right now. We are at April to June today. We're covering this. And as always, I am being joined on the other line by my good friend Kyle Ross over in Cleveland, Ohio, by way of the Top Rope Nation podcast. Kyle, are you ready to talk April to June of 1992? Yeah, Liam, I think I am. Pretty much scandal-free today. That feels good. So we've got more time to do what we like best, break down the booking. That's right. And we, and we have an immense amount to talk about considering that this is really like a two to three month time period and a lot goes down and uh, this is very reminiscent we talked about previously and the reason i mentioned the 1990 series is this episode is very reminiscent of some of those uh, previous shows we did kyle yeah although uh, as i'm about to ask you i think things are a bit more dire during this period <laughs> holy lord have mercy and you know it's funny even though there's no pay-per-view, oh, check that. There is a pay-per-view, the WBF pay-per-view. Which we'll talk about. That is, we still have 12 pages on these three months. Yeah. I have no idea how that happened, uh, despite being scandal-free and not having all the reporting from Dave and Wade that was going on at the time. Just, I was shocked how much there was to break down. And uh, great to be here today. It's, you know, of course, we're no closer uh, physically. Uh, at least uh, as we're both on both sides of the Atlantic. But uh, it is my understanding that we're an hour closer. In we time are. We are. Recording this. So, yeah, okay, there we go. We're both uh, both feeling fresh, both looking good, both ready to do this thing. And I've, I'm going to open this discussion up with a question. Before we get into this television and all the news, April through June of 1992 in the World Wrestling Federation, do you think this stretch of TV was actually worse or comparable to modern WWE, and it's just hideousness. <laughs> I was trying to, I was trying to come up with the answer to this earlier today, and I was kind of like mulling it over and weighing it up. I feel like comparable is an interesting word because there's going to be some comparisons to this stretch of TV we're going to talk about today that are pretty much comparing it to kind of bottom of the barrel periods of time when it comes to wrestling booking, particularly in the 1990s. I feel like the modern product has more individual things wrong or more individual things that annoy me. But I can't say that the end product is necessarily worse than this. This is a pretty rank stretch of time. <laughs> um, and even, even if the current product is more of a turnoff to me, I can certainly see why. Uh, this would be, I mean, this is one of the, this is one of the turning points and we're going to be talking all about it, but things have been rocky. We've been on this very slow decline since we started, even the 1990s, we've been talking about houses being a bit down, a bit down, a bit down. We are now, we are over the edge of the cliff and we are talking this next three month period of time about what comes next. I don't know if it's worse, but comparable, mm, certainly. 
Yeah. You know, it's funny. As we've gone through 1990 and 91, first of all, I would love at one point in our respective podcasting careers, you and I, to cover a period of professional wrestling that we both like. <laughs> because I feel that the listeners must be like, Jesus, do these people even like doing this? I mean, they just shit on this company <laughs> nonstop. I, I assure you there were periods that we like. And to be fair, okay, this whole series that you and I started to do together beginning in 1990 mm -hmm. began with the hypothesis of inevitable decline or was this reversible? And you and I have been complimentary in both 1990 and 91 and even early 92, certainly the Royal Rumble. Yep. When the time calls for it, there's been good stuff. There was not a damn thing that I thought was good on this television in this three-month period. It was brutal. I do agree with you, though. I would probably still rather watch it than three months of mm, yeah. modern WWE television. Because, I mean, three months of modern WWE, what a slog that is to get through. You've got so much. This, oh, yeah. it kind of moves quick. You know what's coming. Yeah, but only man. one hour to digest that time, really. Apart from prime times, but... Yeah, but as far as pre-modern era WWE goes, this might be the worst three-month stretch of television they have. I mean... Even even moving forward, I mean, you guys started covering the Monday Night War series in 95. Was there a yeah. three-month period you thought in that year that was worse than this? The, the, I think the three months, I mean, to be honest, the three months that it, it, during the summer were pretty rough. Um, I, I there's uh, 95 was actually an interesting comparison. And we, we, were gonna, we are going to touch on these comparisons as we go throughout this podcast, because I think that it's it's going to be quite relevant at certain periods of time about how kind of the setup of the company and the structure is quite familiar and quite samey to these all-time bad periods of time. And, you know, I, you know, the modern product, obviously, we could talk about forever. I, I agree with you, though. There are things during this whole series we've been talking about that are very, very good. Probably not many of them are going to get brought up today. And if it is, it's about things that happened before or after this time period. Absolutely. And so, you know, we've basically tipped our hand no poker face on this podcast right. it's it's gonna be an ugly three-month stretch of television folks so please stay tuned but uh, let's get into it and cover it in specific shall we not as we go off a cliff oh, buckle up Liam you ready I'm in I'm in okay let's rehash for the listeners at home so at the end of our last episode even though we damn well knew what the future was going to hold we made the point that a reasonable person could still argue on the heels of WrestleMania 8 that the WWF was still showing glimpses of being a strong promotion. In the midst of a great angle, Flair and Savage had a great match at Mania, and a wild post-match only seemed to heat things up further. Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, as you know, Liam, would become the two key performers for the next five years. They were both on the ascent, and the ultimate warrior was back. <laughs> but following... Yet another wildly successful post-mania tour of Europe, much more on that in our next episode, that will be part four of 1992, reality sets in during the spring of 1992 in the World Wrestling Federation, and business stateside fell off a cliff to a degree that had never been seen before and would not be seen again until 2001 in the wake of the disastrous Steve Austin heel turn. Yeah. In this case, the loss of Hulk Hogan and the numerous scandals we've already touched on were the key contributing factors. And what did Dave Meltzer have to say there in uh, the spring of 1992, Leo? Yeah, so he opens this up by saying, the World Wrestling Federation has its first post-WrestleMania shows in the United States this past weekend. 
to very disappointing houses. Now, part of that is expected, says Dave, since in most years, the post-WrestleMania gates have been low. But, as he says, the gates generally... Sorry, the gates generally bottom out a few months after Mania and not in the period directly following the show, which is mm. the case. Yeah, so, I mean, that was written just a couple weeks yeah. after WrestleMania 8. And headlining the houses, depending on the market here in the spring of 1982, was either the WWF title program between Randy Savage and Ric Flair, or, based on the conclusion of Mania 8, the returning Ultimate Warrior versus Sid Justice. Neither of those two matches, Liam, were drawing. And from Dave's perspective, not surprising that Flair versus Savage matches aren't drawing, quote, great guns. <laughs> nice word choice there. Yeah. Uh, Flair and Savage's lack of appeal, says Dave, has to do with the fact the entire angle revolved around the photos. And they exposed the photos as being fakes. Dave said that the Elizabeth interview, which was on the March to WrestleMania special we talked about, should have taken place after me because it took all questions that were the keys out of the fan's mind and turned it back into just another match. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, there's more to this, but I agree fundamentally with what Dave says. And, and to go back to our last show that we did, I do wonder when reading this exactly at what point it was the decision was made to have Savage win the title. Because as we talked about, Flair was originally supposed to win that match. And then as Savage was renegotiating his contract, um, a contract that actually he'd, he'd been in the process of kind of renegotiating for about three, you know, like three to six months, because we were hearing about that in 1991 when they were trying to get him to return. So mm-hmm. it was not, it was not a, a new situation with Hogan going. Savage gets the leverage to basically say he wants to win the world title at WrestleMania. And that's what happens. If flair was originally supposed to win that match, I can see why they thought to hit the, the expose part of the story before WrestleMania. Cause if Savage isn't going to win the match, in the original plan, and he's just going to lose to Flair, and then he reveals that it was all a lie, and then he loses. That that's setting up a rematch that he will have to lose. So like mm-hmm. he's just making him a complete chump. In which, it, whereas with this, you know, I can I can certainly see why, because you could have Savage, you know, cite the lie after it's revealed as a lie for being like a potential reason and out for why he loses if he's so incensed that he loses his focus or perfect cheats or whatever. Once Savage is winning at Mania, it makes all the sense in the world to leave the truth of what flair was doing ambiguous until afterwards because then when it's exposed flair has to get you know, gets desperate like an idiot has to do something drastic to provoke a rematch in which case he can get the belt back but yeah i, I kind of agree and we talked about it last time about how even though you know by the end of wrestlemania you're thinking man flair and savage let's see this let's, let's take another bit of this let's get the whole nature boy package as savage said um you do as we said come away with the fact that Savage won the belt, busted him open, Liz slapped him in the face. And it's, it kind of felt like more of a blow-off, I guess, than it really needed to. Yeah, and I think in their minds, perhaps, and I wonder if this was originally part of the plans or it was something they came up with after the decision was made to put the title on Savage, Flair kissing Elizabeth, Yeah, was that what was going to be the impetus for rematches around the horn. That, I th- because I, I think that's so, what yeah. they sort of talked about in the immediate aftermath of these interviews. Yeah, that was the thing. That was the thing they talked about. I agree completely. That, that was that was the hook that they tried to throw out there. To, and, and again, based on their promos, and, and Savages in particular, that's totally what they were thinking would be 
the next step, the impetus for the rematches, except that it just, and then you know, it was what they talked about on TV, but clearly just from this, it just didn't take. And real life, as we're about to get into, uh, <laughs> yep. takes an ugly turn. So with Savage getting the belt back and the lie exposed, Dave says, there was nothing left for the babyface to chase. And everything after became anticlimactic. We do need to bring up Psy texting, by mm. the way. This was, I, I don't really know uh, if that's a real word or anything, but. Uh, they sure said it a lot, though. Yeah. So when they exposed the photos, and it's interesting. They, so, is Dave 100% accurate here with his, like, I know they taped this, but they kind of don't really expose the photos as fake until, like, the week after Mania, right? I know Liz does the interview where she says they're fake and she denies it. Yeah. But as I'm kind of thinking now, you know, there was some ambiguity going into Mania. You know, he Flair promised the centerfold, which was a nothing burger. But... Yeah. It was the week after Mania, right, that they show the WWE Magazine story where it's the real photos with Randy in the place of Rick with the, apparently Rick used side texting, they called it. Yeah, so cutting edge technology that's basically Photoshop. Oh, 1992, yes, <laughs> 1992 word for Photoshop. But that's interesting, actually, because we took this, um, you know, from Dave years later, but as I, actually now as I think about it, they did kind of leave it a little ambiguous, didn't they? I mean, the thing Going is, it's like, I, to be honest, I, it's ambiguous in the sense that they didn't expose the photos, but they did have Liz, who it's like, they're not going to have Liz lie, I guess. It's yeah, like, okay. It's like, there's just like, when Liz does the thing saying, you know, as we joked about, this isn't true, and isn't it just appalling how the media will take something like this and run with it, even if you're innocent, you know? Like, by, by the time she says that, it's like, well, we kind of thought that it was bullshit anyway. Everyone else is saying it's bullshit. So now that she's confirmed it's bullshit, I see what you're saying. I, I, to me, that should have been after WrestleMania as well. I think they should have kept it completely ambiguous until WrestleMania. Okay. Now, as we just mentioned moments ago, something that would be later reported that was going on behind the scenes is the real-life split of Randy Savage and Elizabeth. Yeah. And so, I mean, here it is. I mean, Liz is very much, like we said, the impet, the kiss after the match at Mania. She's the heat in this whole feud. And with this divorce taking place behind the scenes, as time wears on, Liz's name no longer even being mentioned on TV, and she's gone. Yeah, she's out of the picture completely. I believe this was while that European tour we talked about was going on. Uh, Savage on the road, Liz not, and yeah. uh, well, was she, did, was she in the corner? Was it a Michaels match? That was the last time she was in his I think corner. Think so, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's how All I remember right. it. But yeah, most okay. notable of this of this period of time, there's a real uh, focus, noticeably in June, of really just promoting Savage hard with like a music video of pretty much just him, um, and a promo where Savage is with Gene Oakland, all dressed in black. Um, Quoting Bon Jovi, actually, mid-promo, saying that Ric Flair gives Liv a bad name, um, but doesn't say who he's talking about. Like, they're kind of alluding to the history of the storyline without really going into the fact that they're talking about Elizabeth, because, like you said, she is out of there. You don't see her again. No, and I really do want to push back a bit on Dave and pin the inability on this feud to draw on Liz being out of the equation, because that killed it. I mean, there was nothing left anymore. I mean... Because all of a sudden now it's like, yeah, okay, well, Savage has the title and he, he has no wife to avenge. <laughs> but yeah. what is there? But 
as much as I want to push back on Dave and say, no, man, this feud would have been fine just if they wouldn't have gotten divorced. The houses speak for themselves here. Savage and Flair did only 4,000 in St. Louis and then 3,600 in Chicago, the latter being the smallest WWF crowd in that market in about five years. And that's before anyone knew about the divorce or, you know, had noticed Liz being written off television. There was one last ditch attempt we should mention to play the Liz card. This being uh, Flair playing an audio recording. And then she has written off entirely. I think a lot of people have seen this segment, Flair Perfect, and some chick are like sitting on a blanket with a freaking boom box in the park. <laughs> and, you know, the pictures have been exposed, but he claims that Liz left him a voicemail and he plays this voicemail, which is obviously fake. But. Yes, we're gonna play. I'm gonna play this clip because it's absolutely. I found this to be absolutely hilarious. Rick Flair's extraordinary answer phone message in particular. Hi, this is Slick Rick. I can't come to the phone right now for obvious reasons. <laughs> but if you leave a message, baby, I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Wait for the woo and the beep. Woo. To the point, yeah, that is great. Uh, to that point, although he would deny those obvious reasons to uh, the George Michael sports machine, as we're going to get to in a minute. But to the point we've been making about, you know, the lie being exposed, this did feel kind of desperate, right? Because once the photos are exposed, try to do this. Everyone's like, all right, now you're just like trying too hard. No one's buying this. There's no real heat with this audio recording, even if Liz was staying around. Yeah, so, like this, this is just poorly placed. Like it's dead by now. Like you've that should have been before Mania. Absolutely, this should have been. Yeah, we, we're going to play the smoking gun right before WrestleMania, and it's this. Mm-hmm. Uh, big picture, looking back, neither of Savage's two feuds, Jake and Flair, that had Liz as the centerpiece, drew well. Remember how just upset we were at those houses uh, coming off Tuesday in Texas, right? We're like, this feud rules. My God, but no one's paying to see these guys around the horn. Do you think it's a case of the crowds not into what I'm going to call Mr. Elizabeth? <laughs> where, like where, where Savage is very much sort of almost, you know, second fiddle to Liz in the package, you know, kind of what he was alluding to all those years previous in the Hogan feud. But here it seems like they're very much pushing Elizabeth at the forefront of his feuds. And Savage, you know, he's wearing a T-shirt. He's getting his ass kicked all the time. Yeah, that doesn't help. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to using Liz as a crutch to help draw with like a personal grudge, it seems on paper like, okay, this is this is great. They've put so much you know, time and effort and into the Liz Savage thing. and then The wedding at SummerSlam. The wedding at SummerSlam. How emotional WrestleMania 7 was afterwards and all that stuff. And if Tuesday in Texas didn't bring him in, I'm not sure that any angle with Liz was going to pay off. Because if, you know, the again, he should never have been hotter in theory than when he makes his big return. And those matches with Jake didn't do well. And this here, the, you know, the Liz, you know, playing the Liz card with the audio recording, it did feel like they were really flogging a dead horse. And... Yeah, I, I really wonder, I wonder if there was something about the high-profile retirement at WrestleMania 7 that really hurt. Because when you actually look at him as a babyface after that, I mean, he doesn't really make a difference in the WWF after that. And why is that? 
because we're, we're going to mention it in a, a little bit in the notes. In 88, when they put the title on him and you know, at WrestleMania and Hogan disappears to do no holds barred mm-hmm. for a few months, there was a lot of worry in Stanford that, okay, business is going to decline pretty hard because we're, you know, running house shows without Hogan for the first time. But not only did they not decline, they did great with yeah. Savage and DiBiase. And again, that was a situation where the baby face was the champion, right? He, he, he pinned. And he pinned the guy that he was working with in the yeah. main event, in, in, the, in, the, in the, big, uh, the big show, and then they carried on working afterwards. It's a very good comparison, and that's why it's like, man, those, the, the results are just polar opposites. Why? I don't. Okay, so, I mean, the company was hotter, certainly, significantly hotter okay. in 88 than it was in, in 92, and, and we are talking about, you know, right after all of these, these scandals, if that made a difference. There is no Hogan. I mean, there was no Hogan on those cards either, but the, I don't think there was certainly the feeling that he'd gone and he'd run for the hills. Um, but, I, you know, Savage, that. I don't know if there was something about the retirement aspect and then him just hanging around that made him not feel all that special. Do you think it was like he felt old and over the hill to the audience? Because here it is. He's retired. Yes. Yes. Married. He's an announcer. He's He's, he's kind of getting his ass kicked. You know, a t-shirt. Yeah, he's matured. He's now like you know, he's he's married. Liz, he's settled down. He's that to me. That's very much it. The fact, like, okay, great progression for the the character. Didn't draw money, and it's the second time around too, right? Like yeah. WrestleMania four, it's Randy Savage has ascended to the top of the WWF. That was new. That was fresh. Yeah, he was the first ba- non Hogan babyface in that role since National Expansion. We've now, subsequently, see it with Warrior, who did not work. And, you know, this is pretty much a disaster. Yeah, with, I mean... With and, Savage the second time around. And maybe part of it, too, is just the fact that, like, when Savage won the title, like, he was he was in the mix at a high level. And, so, I mean, obviously, he is here, too. But they made that match with Flair out of nowhere. And I didn't sense that there was any kind of big clamoring for Savage to get that level of focus no. as the centerpiece of the promotion at that time. So, yeah, it didn't work. Sad to say. And he was friends with Hogan the first time around. Like, Hogan was gone for a couple months, but certainly not forgotten. He was, you know, obviously very much in the forefront at the close of WrestleMania 4, right? Mm -hmm. He helped Savage win the title. Here, there's no Hogan. Second time around, T-shirt. I'm going to keep bringing up the T-shirt. And (laughs) uh, it's just not doing well. Now, I do like some of the promos right after Mania, Liam. Savage calling it, quote, a WWF first for him, the champion, to challenge the challenger. Yeah. The WWF title was mine before it was yours. Oh, I, I love like that, that line. Yeah. And then he, there's an interview where he talks about how he's willing to do anything, right? This is a very different baby face. You know, this is, I'm calling out the challenger. I want the challenger. So they're trying to attack the issue of, okay, well, he's already got the title, so what do we do to spice this up? And it's you've got an incensed champion. His wife has been kissed in the post-match, and mm. Flair is good when bragging about that in his interviews. Yeah. But it, it just was not working. He, first of all, Flair is not being portrayed dominant enough in the ring still. Oh, yeah. Like, there's that slaughter match he does. Uh, it's his, like, first notable TV match. 
after Mania. And he's going like 50-50 with Sarge. And he needs the Mountie to help him. <laughs> yeah. So that that's okay. that, that had been a problem since day one with Flair. Yeah. And all right. There's another question I forgot to ask you earlier. I'm going to bring this up now, though, before we get to the question. How they should have booked this feud coming off Mania. And, and first of all, it's a dead issue because Liz leaves anyway. But I think they should have looked to the Jake Roberts, Rick Rude feud from 1988 for inspiration. Okay. What they needed to do was Savage needed to be like really over the top and sensed. Like yeah. when Flair would cut a promo, whether it was with Gene Okerlund on the podium or whatever, bragging about, oh, I'm a kisser on those lips again. He needed to run right out and attack Flair, Savage. Like, it, it wasn't just, like, not just let Flair do his promo and we'll hear from Randy next week. He need because remember when Jake and Rick Rude had their feud, Rude had the Cheryl Roberts tights, and they did that great <laughs> angle yes. where Jake Roberts did the inset interview. He's like, if you show those tights, I'm going to come out and I'm going to rip them off. And that's exactly what happened. I showed and my wife, by the way, and she thought that was, like, the funniest thing. <laughs> When when wrestling gets my wife, you know it's it's doing okay. So I just don't think Savage was incensed enough. It needed to be a little more violent than your usual WWF angle from this period, and you just didn't have that. I agree. I think that's I think that's a great call. I think that I actually feel, and I thought this when I was watching the promos that there is something missing from both sides. I feel like Savage absolutely needed to be like that he needed to be like jake he needed to he saying that he'll be he's willing to do anything show us show us what you're willing to do and then on the flip side i don't think that flair felt desperate enough i think that flair kind of bragging about the kiss it's like the, the greatness of that promo with flair after after he loses at mania the whole you did it once let's see you do it again to me like flair had to do something out of desperation to get Savage hot enough where he can say, I'll only fight you if you put that belt on the line. I'm not going to wrestle you again. Savage, you know, throwing it out there first as like, you know, oh, this is his bargaining chip to get him back. And then the match just doesn't happen on, you know, anywhere that we can see it apart from a house show. I, I feel like something was missing on both sides. Yeah. And here's another issue with this feud. And we talked about this in part one of the 1992 series. They've been for months job and flair at the houses. Yeah. And that was just so stupid when you know Hogan's going to be leaving. He had not been booked strong enough, not well before that slaughter match we just referenced in passing. But so, you know, you, you've got Ric Flair, the challenger. We're talking about, all right, maybe you need to move. We're, I'm going to ask you, do you think they need to move the title back to him sooner? Yeah. But his own drawing power had been severely damaged pre-WrestleMania. Would that have made a difference? If they had gone back to Flair sooner in the summer, should they have gone back to Flair sooner in the summer? I think this was kind of what was weighing on my mind when I, I said that about him needing to be, again, not being dominant enough in the ring, in the slaughter match, and also not coming out so, you know, larger than life with something. I'm not saying he needs to put Liz in the figure four and break a leg and write off TV forever, but I mean, some kind of like Ric Flair takes this next action because he wants to, you know, provoke this match. Because... There had been, you know, almost as soon as the Rumble 92 goes off the air, from then on, Flair is, like, in this constant position of, like, fighting the booking to come off like a good champion. Yes. Yes. And that's that's an issue. And, and so, while I do think that Flair needs to get the belt back sooner than he does, because the Savage thing, you know, was, was limited, he, he, needed, he needed some repair done himself. 
Yes, and now uh, apparently there were some rumblings uh, (laughs) uh, in one uh, you know, media outlet that Ric Flair might be regaining the title a little bit earlier than he actually did. You want to yeah, get into that? I do. I, I like this. The New York Daily News leaks a rumor, a rumor that Ric Flair <laughs> would be regaining the title from Savage at the Nassau show. Shades of Steve Austin's going to show up at Madison Square Garden earlier this year. Uh, June 19th, they did 11,000 people in the building as a result, and he did not win the WWF <laughs> title that day. Well, at least, you know, the New York Daily News was able to draw a house. That's one positive during this period. <laughs> I'll tell you where they did not draw a house. And this was horrific, really, mm-hmm. when I found this. Now, this we're going a little bit uh, beyond June for this. But on July 11th, Flair and Savage headline in Charlotte, okay? Ric Flair's backyard. Flair is cheered. Savage is booed. It was Flair's first time working Charlotte since joining Titan, and they only drew 3,000 people. Eesh, that's bad. Flair originally wins that match and the title after hitting Savage with brass knuckles, but the ruling was later changed, and that was kind of the finish they were doing around the horn. <laughs> hey, well. they love that shit, that dusty finish down there. <laughs> Let's give them what they want. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we killed Charlotte once before. Let's kill it again. Uh, so... <laughs> Flair and Perfect, by the way, uh, are already teasing a breakup, Dave reported, as several Savage Flair finishes see Savage intercepting Brass Nucks, thrown by Perfect that were intended for Flair, and using them for the win. So that's another finish. Dave expects Mr. Perfect back in the ring around October to feud with Flair, although mm. that could change. <laughs> October, you say, Dave. That's very interesting. What a guess that was on the timing, eh? Yeah. And, of course, uh, well... I... I wonder if he knew when that policy was coming up. Although that whole thing was, it's funny because they kind of were building to it. You brought this up again back in part one where there was that bizarre segment on primetime where they seemed to be driving a wedge between Perfect and Flair. And they did something very similar, obviously, in the build up for Survivor Series when Perfect does turn babyface. But, you know, Perfect turning babyface, and this is something we'll get to in part five, our final part of 1992. That was brought on, of course, by the Ultimate Warrior leaving. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I, I don't know. There were a lot of factors at play that led to uh, Perfect coming back to the ring around that time. But, uh, you know, credit Mr. Meltzer here. He kind of seemed to have his finger on the pulse yeah, guessing I, that Perfect would be back. I just I find that very interesting that considering all the things, all the elements in this equation that changed, all the variables at work, that that would be dead right. That feels and, like some so it feels like that feels like a, pay, a big uh, you know, cash payout was coming at the right time. Yeah. And Flair and Perfect being put together, it's only natural to have a breakup and have them feud. I'm oh, sure that was the, you know, idea from the start. Uh, Flair talking about not drawing very well uh, over in Japan. He worked Tenru uh, for the floundering SWS promotion, and that was a flop. Uh, yeah. 9,000 to the Tokyo Coliseum, and half of that was paper. Match was also disappointing with Tenru uh, winning two out of three falls from Flair. Uh, the, the, this promotion, which you know had been uh, having an arrangement with WWF for a couple of years now, SWS ends up splintering and just going under. Yeah, I, I hope that Tenru, who very much seems like he, I mean, obviously he was the centerpiece of the whole thing, but like, I hope he made some money out of this thing because it's gone and it's done. Oh, okay. No, he did. He beat him twice. 
Uh, two out of three falls. There it is. Okay, this was on April 18th. They also had a, a match on April 17th, apparently, over there. Blair, and Flair, again, jobbing. <laughs> yep, Blair, we'll, take another pin. Now, <laughs> we've had some tall tales on this program <laughs> before. Usually involving Hulk Hogan or Steve Planamenta. Yes. But I'll tell you what, Hulk Hogan and Steve Planamenta, I will raise you this quote. I've never been involved with steroids or any illegal drugs. Ric Flair on the WRC <laughs> Sports Report with George Michael on March 31st. Yeah, he's never been involved with steroids or any illegal drugs at all. That's that's uh, Obviously, it's not what Ric Flair would say in his book years later. He was, in fact, doing steroids multiple times in his career. And uh, illegal drugs, I'm not even going to touch that. Yeah, I, well, he did, so you don't have to. Uh, <laughs> shifting gears, so Flair and Savage not doing well, which no. is so interesting considering, and, and we knew what we were doing. We were just trying to like kind of set up the audience and put them back in an April 1992 mind when we talked about WrestleMania 8 because it really did feel that the program was hotter after Mania 8, but it was anything but. But let's shift gears. The lack of drawing power of the Ultimate Warrior versus Sid Justice does surprise, Dave. Quote, even though there is no real angle, I had thought the return of Warrior for the first time in each city would draw a good-sized crowd. Are you surprised by this? Nope. <laughs> okay, go I, on. I, I, okay, I, I will say this. I do, I agree with Dave in the sense that you would think that considering that Warrior hasn't been around since SummerSlam, him coming back for the first time in each city would do something. That the, the, the we haven't seen you for a while quick burst of interest the first time round. I am surprised at that. But as we're gonna get into that key that first line what Dave said, even though there's no real angle, to me that's the kicker. Okay, so ultimately it's a moot point. We'll get to this, but let's talk about why we think this angle didn't draw. And I think you're going to touch on this, but it's kind of a similar deal in my eyes to Sid and Jake from the previous fall, though. You basically have a surrogate babyface, in this case, Warrior, against the top heel, Justice, who'd been feuding with Hogan. And now it's like, what is Warrior doing? In the promos, you get the sense he's like defending the honor <laughs> of the now absent Hulk Hogan, which was like what Sid was doing for Savage against Jake Roberts. So... It, did you get that sense as well? Oh, it's the same. It's the same. And and much like Sid and Jake, where's the fucking angle? You know, I mean, they they, they did the El Diablo angle that we talked about, uh, you know, months ago. Um, Sid getting bent out of shape that Warrior got involved in his business. Warrior saying that, you know, trying to, Sid trying to end Hulk Hogan was too much for him to stand or sit on his ass at home. Like, that's... What is that? And there's, I mean, there's an issue with Sid anyway that I want to ask you about in a few minutes when we focus on him, um, because I think that there's there's something bigger to, to, to debate with Sid. But yes, yeah, there's just nothing. There's no when you watch the first promos, Warrior just feels. I mean, again, I know we're going to touch on him in a second. He just feels like he's got nothing to say. And as an aside, Harvey Whippleman is just absolute <laughs> cack in the pants. He is symbolic. <laughs> As the manager of Sid Justice. When Sid's doing these promos, Whippleman may as well not even be there. He may as well be in Bosnia for, for, <laughs> all, he, for all he does for Sid Justice. He's quite literally, Sid takes 100% of the promo. Whippleman doesn't even set him up. He just well, just the point of having a heel manager, right? That was yeah. Bosnia was just coming into existence in 92, right? And that was when <laughs> Yugoslavia was splitting up. I don't know, maybe you 
uh, know a little bit more about that as well. But uh, it's uh, your side of the pond. Anyway, this what is what warrior? I'm... What, what do you think about that warrior issue? Okay. Whatever, quote unquote, it, and I hate when people talk about it. What is it? It's factor. Yeah. But whatever it warrior had when I first saw him in 1987, it was clearly gone here. The commentary post-mania is trying so damn hard to get him over as the most popular guy in the promotion, even though Savage is the champion. There's that shameless promo with the kids, and it's just not working, man. <laughs> that segment in particular was just fucking awful. Warrior, you know, smiling and acting chummy. So, you know, but it's, it's Gene Oakland on the podium with a bunch of kids randomly standing there. Gene asks, with their faces painted, Gene asks one of them who his favorite wrestler is. Shockingly, he didn't say Jumbo Saruta. He does say the Ultimate Warrior. He comes out (laughs) smiling, tussling hair. Shucks, what a great guy. My wife (laughs) did not pop like this with Jake and Rude and instead just looked at this as, as Warrior pulls in these young children close to him and picking them up saying, this guy looks pretty creepy, to be honest. Which is just great. Uh, again, I'm not sure I realize just how flat Warrior feels in his first month back. His promos are the same, but something's changed. Something's missing. There's an energy that's not there. And I don't know. The hair doesn't help. <laughs> he's, had this, he's had this very strange bob cut done that really kind of... And, and, and you know, it was almost... I don't know. It's like there's like an elephant in the room. It's like there, there is just something tangible missing. Whether it's the fact that he's been gone and we don't know why... Whether it's the fact that he needs something more than talking about how the gods told him to get off of his ass to help Hulk Hogan for some reason. He beat Skinner on TV in his in his first television match. And he is, I mean, he's clearly lost a good bit of steroid weight. And I don't know how much that contributes to it too, not having that Arnie, that Arnie completely ridiculous physique. Um, but yeah, I, I was interested to know what you thought in terms of like, at the time, did you have the same impression? Like something's not the same. Well, we've got to talk about the all one of the all-time wrestling urban legends mm-hmm. that it, it yeah. is actually fake, you know, that people thought that it was a different Ultimate Warrior because yeah. of all the loss of steroid weight. You know, there were people that thought it was Kerry Von Erich just playing the Ultimate Warrior. That was something people thought at the time. And it's funny that it's one of those few urban legends that, like, casual fans maybe from that period maybe like to quote it's of course completely wrong there's only one jim helwig i mean they couldn't find anyone else to be this idiotic but yeah (laughs) i I don't know like i said you're right something was just off and i something you said about how the absence wasn't addressed it's just like oh he's back now yeah that is an interesting elephant in the room yeah business as usual as if nothing had happened yeah they're sort of i mean they're you know, um, admitting he was gone, but they're not saying why. And I, I can't remember how I felt as a kid at the time. I was probably pretty fired up, actually, to yeah. see him back. And I remember it, it was a talking point at school. Um, you know, I remember WrestleMania 8, people talking about the next day in a homeroom. But as we're going to... Um, Talk about moving forward. Yeah, fewer and fewer kids were talking about the Ultimate Warrior, WWF in general, in school. And it, it was bad, man. It was real bad. He, we'll talk, you know, he wears that, you know, painted on muscle suit. Um, <laughs> that's something we'll, we'll hit on. But uh, let's talk about business here, Liam. Uh, it got very dire. And mm-hmm. six out shows had to be canceled. Three out on the West Coast, one of them because of the Rodney King riot riots uh, yes. but that was not an excuse for the other two uh where no rioting was taking place in the area now 
for those of you too young or don't aren't sharp on your U.S. history, the Rodney King verdict was one of the real fine pieces of U.S. jurisprudence. <laughs> I don't know if you guys allow me to ask the stereotypical ignorant American question of you. Aren't all American questions ignorant? But uh, <laughs> this one, you guys have never had anything like this, right? Oh, there's probably some instance, but nothing this egregious. Okay, so for those of you who forgot, the Los Angeles Police Department, more on them later on, uh, they pulled over an African-American motorist, and basically the entire department just beat the shit out of him yeah. with their billy clubs. And while four guys in particular, while everyone else was just watching. Yeah. And so... This was a big, big, big issue in L.A., brought racial justice into the fold, and the police officers were acquitted, which led to massive, which is just one of the most head-scratching things. I remember being like, like even, so I was 11 when that verdict came in, and being just stunned. I was like, what? They beat the shit out of that guy. And gave us a lot of great rap albums, you know, I'm thinking about Ice Cube the Predator right now, but uh, I remember, you know, you'll get a kick out of this. I wrote a paper in, oh my God, it would have been eighth grade examining that whole story. And I wrote, and I remember because the teacher called my parents saying, um, are you aware of what your son is writing? Oh my word. I, I wrote... I think my conclusion was that the African-American population in Los Angeles should be able to get free shots at the police department and we'll see <laughs> how they feel about it. And I don't know, this, this France, I think, was taken a little bit back that a, you know, <laughs> 12-year-old would write that. But so I felt they're just, just absolutely hideous uh, uh, from the United States judicial system. Uh, you know, quite frankly, things aren't a lot better 30 years later. But yeah, sadly so. Yeah, other cancellations now were in Jacksonville, Florida, Valparaiso, Indiana, that was headlined by Flair and Savage, and Richmond, Virginia, which was headlined by Warrior Justice. So those were the non-three West Coast shows that were postponed. Total of six house shows just canceled. The Richmond cancellation was supposedly an administrative error by the building since the week advance, something like that's W-E-A-K, something like 600 tickets sold just two days before the show. <laughs> that led the WWE to cancel, a f to want to cancel the future Richmond date, but because of a miscommunication, the building just canceled the existing one instead. <laughs> well, I'm sure the 600 folks who were scheduled to go to the show were very sad they didn't get to see Warrior and Sid. Yeah, you want to talk about Americana here, Liam, the promotion, WWF, also taking Memorial Day weekend off and has no shows scheduled for July 4th weekend. In the past, as you know, Memorial Day and mm -hmm. July 4th, some of the best drawing weekends for professional wrestling, particularly July 4th. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, world class hung its hat on July 4th for years. You know, had some, its greatest match ever in the history of that promotion, July 4th, 1983, with the Von Erichs and the Freebirds. And then the first war games. For Crockett was on yep. July 4th in 87. So just they sort just, of waving the white flag. Yeah, it really is. Man. Throwing in the towel on these big, big days of pro wrestling. We won't bother that week. No, no, I didn't buy that again. Uh, just to all of you folks listening on the other side of the pond, I apologize again for July 4th. We'll, we'll just you know, we'll just <laughs> shake hands and move on. And if things couldn't, uh, well, <laughs> be bad enough for the WWF, Sid quits. 
Sid quits. It got a little hot and he, he started feeling like it was heat stroke and he had to tap out. Yes. Uh, apparently, this is Dave's reporting, apparently a pretty high-level guy in the WWF faked a urine test using a Visine bottle filled with clean piss and got caught and stooged out to the front office. This would mean an immediate six-week suspension under the steroid testing guidelines. He's still working shows for the moment, however, says Dave. Now, Dave did not in that particular issue of the observer name the person no didn't need to the following week dave would confirm the quote pretty high level guy was in fact sid and his failed test was prior to mania and he's still main evented (laughs) Uh, but it wasn't a visine bottle as previously reported sid was able to get a large supply of the bottles uh the urine specimens are sent in and according to the source The tests are indeed monitored to make sure it is the person's urine that goes in the bottle. But in carrying an identical bottle with someone else's clean urine, the person is able to make a switch after he is monitored if need be. Supposedly, this has been a common practice, at least with the few obvious candidates. Yeah, I was saddened to hear this. I I prefer (laughs) the fake dick story. So, <laughs> frankly, I'm going to believe that to the end of time that Sid was carrying a rubber hose. And, um, yeah, I, I, I prefer that story. I'm going to go with that one. Okay. Well, regarding Sid failing this test, Steve Planameta told Alex Marvez, quote, I can't say if the report is true or false, but would it fault you for printing it? <laughs> Can anybody accept any fault or blame in this company when things go wrong? Anybody? Yeah, I... Your thoughts on Sid still being able to main event <laughs> WrestleMania despite the uh, test failure? Well, you know, when you see this symbol, Kyle, <laughs> you can be assured, you and your family can be assured of drug-free sports entertainment uh, that you can all be proud of. And, and may I add, the most stringent, according to Steve Planamenta, drug testing in any sport, including the Olympics, <laughs> who, I, who I assume, you know, test their athletes and then let them run. 100 meters regardless of whether or not they fail i'm gonna be honest with you i've thought about this because i know you're probably gonna you're probably gonna ask me this i would have still let him made of that at that point what are you gonna do fucking pull him out i mean it, it's not like now where you can just sort of like switch main events. You've got Twitter and you can get, rile the audience up for something different. And sometimes the modern audiences actually get more excited about a late switch because they're so bored by the week to week storytelling. I mean, can you imagine if they would have pulled Sid from WrestleMania 8? I'm not excusing the behavior. I'm just saying that. I, I would have been no better in that position than Vince McMahon was. I still would have let him main event. Hey, I'm all I'm all for this discussion about intelligently figuring out how to do this. However, don't be the person who talks about how you're you got the most stringent drug testing in all of sports. I mean, the only way he could have been more guilty is if he just walked to the ring with the needle in him. Yeah, you know? like that's the only way he could have like failed the test more. Got out of doing a job too, still because they yeah. thought he was going to be around. You know, for yes. you know post Mania houses. Of course, he isn't. And Let's talk about what happened. To Mr. Yeah, Sid so here. officially, officially, Sid gets suspended for unprofessional conduct uh, for some period no less than six weeks. But Which before of course that, even... is the suspension time for failing a steroid test. Yeah, supposedly so. Now, before that actually happens, before that suspe- the uh, suspension is levied, Sid actually walked out on the company anyway, following a match with Warrior in Boston on April 26th. Now, those eagle-eared listeners out there will realize that even though he failed the drug test before WrestleMania and was still allowed to headline WrestleMania, he still 
working all these shows anyway. Yes. He's upset, apparently, that Wario was supposed to kick out the power bomb, so he splits, uh, and then they give him the suspension. So uh, Sid is also denying everything about the failed test and says he was going to quit anyway. Uh, Dave, of course, still thinks that softball is as likely an explanation as anything else, given how he also took time off this part of the year in both 1990, when he had his... uh, extended absence for a punctured lung thanks to scott steiner and 1991 after he bailed on wcw and and kind of stabbed them in the back on the on the contract <laughs> negotiations as we talked about previously but uh yeah there's no evidence says dave that sid was ever asked to do a job for the warrior so that's likely not the inciting incident either so sid probably just sick of the fact that it was his time to you know give something back to the baby faces softball season let's take some time off Failed steroid test, it all adds up, I'm out of here. Now, Dave said at the time, Sid is expected back in six weeks. But is that even a good idea, Dave wonders? Sid is an easy guy to get over in a short amount of time, but he's not exactly great for morale. Was That was written in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Later in the year, Sid does apparently try to get back in and contact WCW as well. I mean, the gall <laughs> of this guy. But there's no interest. Uh <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, when you when you think about it, though, six months after this, and they are very sensitive about steroid problems popping up, as we're going to talk about in part five. Yeah. So, Sid, with the suspension, the walkout, quit, fired, situation, whatever, he is quickly removed from the Superstars Open. He would get his release by the fall, and Dave says Japan is the likely destination. Quote, and they'll be sorry as well. <laughs> Of course, Liam Sid never comes back. Well, never being 1995. So let's take a breath here and analyze Sid's WWF run because we talked so much about the the behind-the-scenes machinations of him ditching WCW the previous year and coming to Titan to headline against Hogan. What do we think about this WWF run? He comes in as the ref for SummerSlam. He struggles to get over as a babyface, gets hurt. Then you get the Rumble angle with Hogan the heel turn, and the Mania main event, and then he just quits. <laughs> yeah, so I, I really would like to ask you about oh. your memories at the time about Sid here, because I'm certain that when we talked about 1991, you had said that you knew who Sid was at this point, yeah. before he came in. Yeah. And my question is, well, not really a question, but amusing. I could see WWF-only fans who didn't know who he was coming in just not knowing what the fuck to think of Sid. Because when you look at his like trajectory since the beginning, as you've said, and the strange heel turn that, you know, didn't feel like the most organic, even if it got him in the most organic place at the end with him as a monster heel, he's in the company for less than a year. He's out for 10 weeks in the middle of this run. Every time he starts to get a little bit of traction, he either gets hurt or he gets thrust into somebody else's angle or something changes the heel turn. And my question, when we're talking about why he's not drawing with Warrior, has he actually been booked strong enough? Consistently enough? Well, here's the thing, and you kind of hit on this a little bit, that he just didn't have a clear direction, like one clear direction, Mm. for a long enough period of time. I think the best he was ever booked was right after the heel turn in February, when he's Mm. squashing jobbers, you know, he's reading, you know, fan yeah, the letters, children's yeah. letters about Brutus Beefcake. That was sort of the peak of Sid during this run. 
but it wasn't for very long. And as we hit on last time, the heat was kind of dying out by the time WrestleMania was rolling around. So I I think it's, there's something larger at play with Sid. And I want to get back to what Meltzer said about Sid being quote, an easy guy to get over in short order. Yeah. Sid is a guy. He's obviously well-remembered, great look people. You know, even people who lived through it knew what a knucklehead he was still sort of have this, I don't know if admiration is the quite, is the right word. Maybe affinity, I guess, might be mm. better for Sid. But I think he came along at a wrong time in the history of this business. He would have been someone perfect for the old territory system. Mm. In the sense that he comes into the territory as a monster heel, wipes out a bunch of people, you build him up for the top baby face in the territory, top baby face in the territory beats him, he leaves, rinse, repeat in a different territory. Yes. Like a Kamala. Mm, yeah. Essentially. Uh, by the way, more on him later on. <laughs> so you can make the argument maybe Sid came around 10 years too late. Then again, maybe he came around 10 years too early because. He would clearly have been a badass babyface post-Attitude Era, right? Yeah, very much in the Batista model, I mm-hmm. can see. Yeah, the, the, the guy who's you can bring him in as a heel to build to the babyface turn, and you can you can do that. Yeah, I, th- I think heels, heels like Sid, and I think this you know, Vader very much fits this bill as well, which is funny because of the fate that he faced. The guys who have that territorial vibe of a guy who can come in and be the monster heel and dominate... They have a real problem in the WWF where they are used to using guys that way in that they get over best by destroying people. Those guys are not put on top. They are built up to be fed to the guy that is on top. And then once you beat them, they lose a lot of the mystique. And we talked in the previous, uh, maybe not the previous, but the, the, the first podcast of 92 about The Undertaker and the fact that part of the reason The Undertaker endured the way he has and did at the time was that he was built up as the monster heel Beat Hogan. He, he didn't just lose to the top guy. He beat the top guy first, got beat back. But then before he started doing, you know, the mega jobs to everybody, he, he turns babyface and he keeps on winning. And, yes. And it sustains him. And with guys who are built up as the monster heel to do that, unless they turn them babyface immediately afterwards, they're only going one way. And you can look at the guys who are in the company still at this point in 92, like Earthquake, who eventually they're just going to get willed down and beaten and then they're going to find their place in the middle and some guys like a vader and a sid they don't work as guys in the middle no and we'd seen it with bundy two years earlier right i mean that was why piper although piper was not a a very much different kind of heel but he was still a top heel nonetheless for so long in the mid 80s he was very adamant about never losing to hogan on television because he saw what happened yep to the big heels once they lost to the top babyface it was just a slow decline uh down the depth chart and it would have been very interesting to see what would have happened with sid had he remained in the promotion in 1992 where would he fit on the SummerSlam card this is not in the notes i'm throwing this at you cole yeah no i think that this is i wonder i mean to be honest considering how they pretty much just kept a lot of feuds running for a long time i wonder if they would have they probably wouldn't have done savage and they probably would have done savage and warrior they would have gone with savage and flair and warrior and sid most likely i would think 
Yeah, even though, you know, again, I it didn't feel like, and this is a real indictment of Sid, as bad as this period was, and things only get more dire as we roll along, trust me, folks, stick with us <laughs> one minute, it's about ready to really get shitty. But it's not like business took this huge tumble when he left. No. And let's look at this. the two major WWF editions from 1991, Liam. We talked so much about this. We had so much notes. Mm-hmm. Sid and then Flair coming in in the summer of 91, just sort of falling into the WWF's lap. One is now gone, Sid, and the other isn't drawing. Flair, who yeah. would have thought this when they got them in the summer of 91? That By the summer of 92, these guys would be just not difference makers. Yeah, and it's not. it hasn't even been a year, you know? It hasn't even been a year, especially for Flair. Yeah. Add that to the fact that Jake's gone <laughs> and the heel mm-hmm. side is in deep, deep shit. Yeah, it is. And the answer to this dilemma was not good. So <laughs> with Sid gone, the pivot is to Papa Shango, who had to take Sid's place as an emergency fly-in against Warrior for the scheduled Northeast house shows. Yeah, Shang- Shango is the answer. Now, before we get moving on Shango, because obviously we're going to be talking quite a bit about him and, and what comes next, I want to point out that they, not only did they retcon the, after WrestleMania, our cameras went into Sid's locker room before WrestleMania, and this is what they found. It's just Papa Shango doing some voodoo nonsense, a curse on a picture of Hulk Hogan. So that explains, I guess, why he did a run-in. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Shango's main event involvement was a complete one and done. No real thought into it, as we said. Just a complete random occurrence. And obviously no follow-up plan, because post-WrestleMania, the announcers, particularly Vince, are talking up this theoretical, what would happen if Papa Shango went one-on-one with The Undertaker? And clearly, when you start hearing that, you know that's the direction, which is you know, only you know, doubly amusing in the sense that that was the original plan in 97 too, this major... Undertaker, Papa Shango angle, the original plan for Paul Bearer's secret, which ended up being Kane uh, when they changed their mind. But yeah, so that's, that's clearly the way this is going to go. So Shango, who's just like debuted like not that long ago, uh, just a man without a country, just kind of like floating around with whatever top baby face needs some urgent help. Yeah. And so we haven't even talked about that because it was in the Observer that Undertaker and Shango, they're real-life friends, of course, the, the BSK gang or whatever, that that was going to be a post-mania angle, but, it, you know, Shango inexplicably gets moved off the card here to feud with Warrior now that Sid's gone, and on TV, the WF's first idea of a big angle to heat this Warrior-Shango program up was to have Shango place a curse on the Warrior. It was very embarrassing, I thought. <laughs> yeah, that look, there's a lot we can say about the Shango character, but the first one... That laugh, the the Baron Samity laugh, needs to go. The Shango, that's really bad. <laughs> like it's so corny. Yes, and from there it just keeps getting dumber uh, because we get the infamous barfing angle. I'm sure all of our listeners are privy to that, or privy to this, have seen it, whatever. After a Warrior Brian Knobs match on television. Yeah, this is the, the scene where uh, Shango you know, rocks up in the aisle, starts shaking uncontrollably. Warrior's on the apron, you know, celebrating, and all of a sudden he just gets this cramp in his stomach and uh, an unbearable cramp that they, they they treat like death. And they take him backstage and he stops throwing up everywhere. Lovely stuff. 
very, very bad. I mean, like, we'll get into, I've got a question for you on this, but, you know, this stupid fucking ooze you've got that even gets <laughs> mean Gene at one point in, in an interview. Because after this angle, and it, you're right, the, the warrior imaginary selling of the gut is really embarrassing. But then, you know, they do these interviews on the podium uh, in the weeks <laughs> that follow where Warrior's talking to Mean Gene and the ooze comes down his face. Then Shango does an interview with Mean Gene and the ooze comes down Mean Gene's face. Uh, as far as the barfing angle goes, Dave had this to say, quote, wholesome family entertainment with worthy role models. I just hope for the sake of the guy who was playing a doctor, two things. One, he wasn't really a doctor because doctors who have appeared in Titan skits usually wind up either <laughs> in jail or on probation for illegal drug crimes. And two, they did it in one take. But barfing? He's <laughs> got a puke. Oh, and actually, you know, a quick editorial there. I believe the black goo didn't come down Gene's face. It was down his hand. His hand was twitching wildly. Oh, that's he, right. That's right. It was the hand. And Gene would not, it out. Yes, Gene was not about to get a shirt dirty for this bullshit. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> no, he was not. I don't blame so, him. More stupidity. The lights uh, go out before a Shango squash match, and the jobber's boots catch fire when the lights come back up, and the ooze is on his face <laughs> before another Shango squash. There's even more voodoo where he put the spell on a jobber who then ran from the ring without even having the match. More ooze. Mm. Then you have a jobber's hand catching fire. Jobber's yeah. coming out last, too, which were a telltale sign that it was an angle alert. <laughs> yeah. so, I, I got to say, before we progress, there are two angles that we're going to talk about today that happened during this period of time that were like school playground legend to me when I was becoming a wrestling fan. Uh, and this, that that was the first one. The jobbers, oh my God, you won't believe what Papa Shango did. The, you know, he, <laughs> you know, he, he, so there was some fucking wild shit took place. And the jobbers, they, they didn't call him a jobber. This he made a wrestler's feet go on fire. And like, you, you, you kind of hear that and you're like, oh, this sounds interesting. But like when you actually see it and it's like, you got the commentators to out, just how real is this voodoo? <laughs> it's like, it's so completely absurd. The job is just lying there with his feet on fire, a big fucking black load of cum on his face. Yeah. <laughs> it just looks awful. And it's like, what, what are we doing? Black load of cum, that's a new one. Uh, as if this feud couldn't sound bad enough on paper. But <laughs> it was even worse in practice. We saw. I will say, it kind of seemed like there was heat no pun intended when the jobbers feet were on fire although it could have just been the docile wb audience scared that like you know there was a fire in the building i don't know if they were you know necessarily worried for the jobber uh and this is unbelievable so i am going to <laughs> scour the internet looking for video to see if this exists but it was reported in the observer that at the time that the new house show killing twist was that the Warrior Shango matches featured spots where Papa Shango, quote, does voodoo to Warrior in the middle of the match, resulting in Warrior selling without ever being touched. <laughs> the reaction has been groans and even people walking out. I, I would love to see this. I'd love I, to see this. Do we know if... Have you ever seen this or anything like that? I, I don't not, know. Okay. I've not seen footage of it, but man, let me tell you, this is like... This is like, you know, uh, 
Fucking Larry Zabisco's dream. <laughs> to come up, to come up. Jerry Lawler in 96 would have come up with like this. This is like the stalling method of all stalling methods. Oh, to yes. Get, to get a good night's work out of doing absolutely fuck all. Yeah. So I don't know if, if you know, maybe on the Facebook page or something like that, if we can find Please. a clip, we'll, we'll put it on there because, yeah, this just the thought of that just sounds so horrible to be based on how Warrior was selling the uh, gut in the barfing angle. But uh, speaking about the house shows here, uh, head, the ones headlined by Warrior Shango actually had 11,000 on hand in Nassau on May 1st and 8,000 in Philly on May 2nd. So some people are so oh, you two and your taste, wrong again. Well, that's mm. misleading those numbers because those shows were originally advertised as Warrior versus Sid and took place before the television angle aired. Yeah. On June 5th, listen to this, everybody. After the TV angle had aired, Warrior Shango drew one of the lowest crowds in the history of Chicago with only 2,500 people. Jesus Christ. All right. Jesus here's the, Christ. Here's the big question, Mr. O'Rourke. Is this the worst main event angle in company history, at least up until this point? Oh, yeah, it's down there. I mean, there's a few contenders when, when you say something like that, but this ticks a lot of the boxes. It's not just that it's putrid. And and we can talk a little bit about Shango in a second as a as a commodity, I suppose. This is the kind of thing where it's just a turn off to the point that you can see fans deciding that with no Hogan, nothing else really on offers we're going to talk about. And this, this is like a good time to jump off this train. And I just, I really think that like, you get, and, and, and we should know, obviously, Pat Patterson's gone. This is the yes. First that we should have known that early on, he's gone for this period of time, allegedly. And Allegedly, and it's very interesting because the TV it takes such a poor turn. Yeah, you can believe it. I actually do wonder if he was legitimately gone for at least a few weeks. Yeah. Especially, you know what, I'll say it now. I have it in the notes for our next show, but I'm going to just say it now. Pat Patterson, who, of course, does come back, was said uh, to have hated this Warrior Shango angle and just completely mixes it. Good. Which... Which, again, spoiler alert, as you know, this this program does not uh, have a lot of legs at the houses, nor does it go on for many months. So I'll tell you what, man. I don't think there is a better endorsement for Pat Patterson's booker than if he was really gone during this time period. Yeah, I agree. Because, I mean, these angles they come up with are just atrocious in the interim. So I am fairly certain you would not have done Warrior and Shango uh, as the, uh, you know, answer to Sid leaving. So what's the alternate play here, right? We always talk about, all right, if you're going to criticize something, you got to have, you know, another option yourself. Going back to our Savage Flair discussion from earlier, seems to me like the play was Flair gets the title back, like right away, and you have Warrior chase him, which is, you know, something we've touched on before. Yeah, and I think that the, the key here is that it's not even a, an issue of hindsight. To look at the roster the day of WrestleMania, when you know, okay, Jake's going, we know that. We know that Sid's failed a drug test that we're probably going to have to address at some point, maybe. Maybe we won't <laughs> until yes. he leaves, who knows. It's not hindsight to say that on that day, when you know you're giving the belt to Savage, the only people he can work with on top are Flair and Sid, and Sid's you know, just failed this test. Jake's gone. So, to me, and it's, it's, it's interesting only because 
you look at this and you look at Savage's champion and it's there's such a feeling to me of, again, as I said before at the start of the show, there were comparisons you can make in this company at, at this period of time to other bad periods. And 95 was one that you mentioned. It's a good one because 95, they've got like Diesel, Brett, Sean, Taker, Razor, Lex on the babyface side. And on the heel side, funnily enough, we have Sid <laughs> and, yeah. and Jeff Jarrett as your King like, Mabel. Heel. King Mabel. Heel Davy Boy, which fucking bombed. And like, so you you get this just completely imbalanced rust and heels with no heat. And it's it's kind of similar here. Even though you don't have that one guy like they don't in Night 5 that's really setting the world on fire, here they have Savage and Warrior and Taker and Brett, who they put over pretty hard. And on the heel side, they've got like really very, very little to work with. And so to me, as soon as Sid is actually gone, gone, Flair getting the belt back then and moving to Warrior is where things, to me, should have gone. They ended up that, that was the that was the plan they ended up going with. But to me, they need to get there a lot quicker than they did. And it's and as soon as Sid bails, I think that you you do that and you have to shoot a major angle with Flair and Warrior to jumpstart things and get that going. And and you know maybe the issue just was that as we said, they were so tied to Savage with that new contract and the leverage he had that you didn't want to, you know, you didn't want to just throw shit in Savage's face straight away. I mean, his wife's about to leave him, so you can only, you know, you can only hit the guy so hard. Yeah. Oh, doesn't he want the time off to go with, like, I would say, Randy, take care of the home. Yeah. First, before, you know, we're going to take the title off you. I mean, you know, life's going in a a nasty direction here. Yeah. Uh, You know, take time off. Maybe that was the answer. And I mean, and hell, even, even if he didn't want to, I think the Warrior Flair plan is still the way to go, and it does leave Savage needing a new dance partner. But you got to prioritize the top, and I don't think that you. Know, it's not hindsight to say that like this this direction is going to lead to some shitty heels getting a chance because when you look at the roster, there's not a lot to work with. Oh yeah, I mean, you watched the footage obviously in preparation mm-hmm. for the show. Who who was Savage working with? Like he had a match with fucking IRS. IRS, yeah. Skinner. And, the, you know, you talk about Savage not being the same as 88. I was watching those matches. It reminded me of, like, 1995 World WCW Worldwide Savage. Where you just <laughs> sell for the whole match. Yeah. And one move to turn the tide, elbow, let's go home. And, like, the yeah, match, yeah. but the heel heat segment was so boring and so bad. It went on for so long. He does work Michaels on the European tour. They have some fun matches. Yep. Especially, you know, with the old Sherry dynamic being at play, but no one's buying Shawn Michaels at that point as beating Randy Savage. So you're right. There just were not enough viable heels for Savage. Who's not drawing to work with. So look, I, we'll get into this. Flair warrior. Wasn't a panacea anyway. No, uh, I don't, I don't think there was quite frankly, a right answer during this period. I mean, that might be funny. the answer really. Yeah. It's funny. You know, we went to great lengths to sort of rebook, 90 and 91 and try to reverse this quote-unquote uh inevitable decline and i think there were, were some great ideas that we laid out there particularly in the summer of 1990 that could have you know stemmed the tide but i think at this point honestly yeah they're fo- they're fooked <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they might well be as, as my good friend carl jones once said when, when you try to fix this time frame, it's almost like you're trying to just rearrange deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not good. And 
Speaking of not good, the steroid testing program. Um, <laughs> this, this esteemed steroid testing program. Well, when discussing it, Steve Planamenta said the following about the Ultimate Warrior. Quote, I've looked in his eyes and his head was clear. He's never looked or sounded better. He's healthy. He's rested. Yeah, thanks, Steve. That's <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Incredible. You've looked <laughs> in his <laughs> eyes. His head is clear. Oh, wow. Yeah, let, let's move to a different uh, subject here. Later in the summer, it is reported that WWF house shows are down 36% from 1991. Ooh. This is mostly due to Hogan being gone. Uh, Dave had the following to say, the WWF did surprisingly uh, very well during the summer of 1988 without Hogan. We mm -hmm. mentioned this earlier, but did poorly the summer of 1990 without him. TV ratings down 16% and setting record lows on oh. cable. Yeah, so in the observers, he does talk about this, doesn't he? He says like, it, when when he's covering May, he talks about how you know the cable ratings hit all time lows this week, and then he talks about you know, all American and the show's doing bad. Skip ahead a few weeks to June and the business analysis, and they sink even lower than the all time lows of May. So yeah, it, is, it is a downhill slope. Yeah, and it just kind of keeps going that way for the rest of '92. Like it, it's almost like rinse repeat record lows on cable WCW. We don't even want to get into how atrocious business was for them under Bill Watts during this period. Uh, now things are quote still okay says Meltzer in the big picture thanks to an incredible European tour, but it's not realistic to assume those numbers can hold all year and it's likely to get worse after the summer. Thankfully, they can mm -hmm. always go overseas when and if things get dire in the States where Nassau and Philly are really the only places the company is drawing. Of course, that yeah. is a subject matter we will hit on quite hard in part four of this 1992 series. How about this tidbit <laughs> from a June 4th house show in Fort Wayne, Indiana? Grab this from the history of WWE.com. Uh, Shout out to Richard Land and Graham Cawthorn. Uh, Quote, this house show in Fort Wayne was originally scheduled to include The Ultimate Warrior and Carrie Von Erich, but both were no-shows, and <laughs> all fans were offered refunds for the show as they had been advertising that the WWF World Champion Randy Savage versus Ric Flair would be the main event of the show, which was a mistake, and because of the no-show of Warrior as well, that led to refunds being offered. It was announced to the crowd at the beginning of the show that if Warrior didn't appear, that a battle royal would replace his match with Papa Shango instead. Jesus. Earthquake did end up winning a 10-man battle <laughs> royal. Uh, Meltzer, in regards to refunds being offered uh, at the time, wrote, quote, a display of fairness to the audience never seen before in recent wrestling history. <laughs> I, I I see what he's saying because the standards were very low. There, there were there were articles that Dave did, editorials at the time in the Observer, where he was very surly about just how flagrant false advertising had become in both companies. A couple of things to touch on here. Originally scheduled to include the Warrior and Kerry, but both no shows. Still not convinced they're not the same person based on that news. And yeah. uh, and also <laughs> the idea that like a ten man like. Hey, folks, we don't know what's going to happen on this show. Just to let you know, it could be a Papa Shango main event or a 10-man battle royal. <laughs> and, like, my idea for this is a make good. After this, the, the display of fairness, they should have said, and by the way, if you don't like that, we'll give you a free ticket to the WBF pay-per-view. Yeah, well, yeah, and more on that in this, the uh, program because they had plenty on hand to give away. 
fucking earthquake winning a 10-man battle royal? I need to see who else was in this match. Oh, I've, I've got it. Oh, I, please. Uh, Repo Man, IRS, Skinner, Rick Martel, Tatanka, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Crush, and Jim Duggan. Poor Bret and Shawn. They were really stretching this out, too, on not, this show. Not, not the 92 Rumble. No. Uh, listen to this. Rick Martel beat Tatanka via countout at 18 minutes. Oh. Brett and Sean, they gave him 25 on this show. Maybe they got a treat. Who knows? Crush beats Skinner at 10 minutes. That's, that's too long. That's just too long. Jim Duggan defeated the Repo Man via DQ. You Barry couldn't Dar- beat the Repo Man? <laughs> Barry Darso said, hey, all these guys know showed. I'm not doing a fucking job tonight, pal. <laughs> You can at least give these people a finish. After- well, they also, so there was supposed to be a tag title match on this show, Money, Inc. vs. Natural Disasters. They pulled that and just did Earthquake over IRS. Oh, okay. So, you know, God. send the crowd home happy. My, my, well, no, that was earlier in the show. Earthquake, Earth, the 10-man battle royal was last. My apologies to anyone who was at the Allen County War Memorial Coliseum Good on Lord. June 4th, 1992. What a fucking catastrophe that show was. So... Things are not good on no. the top of the card, Mr. O'Rourke, uh, no. as we move away from WrestleMania 8. And I'm going to tell you what, they ain't good in the mid-card either. Mid-card, where art thou is our next <laughs> section. Somebody, uh, with, anybody save this thing. Yes, uh, with the main event scene cratering, sadly, the mid-card was of little help. Uh, that's my own words. And listen to some of these beauties uh, for post-mania marriages. All right, Money Inc. versus Natural Disasters must continue. Ugh. Tatanka versus Martel must continue. Undertaker versus Berserker. Sergeant Slaughter versus the Mountie. Bulldog versus Repo Man. Beverly's versus the Legion of Doom. Pardon me, the Legion of Sissies. Mm, yes, that being the basis of this feud. These weren't just like shit house show programs. They were running, you know, in the event center. TV time was dedicated to these angles, folks. A lot of it. Sergeant Slaughter in the Mountie in 1992. Bulldog versus Repo Man. Leal, how (laughs) fucking shitty is this mid-card situation uh, in 1992 in the summer here? This this is awful. This is an awful mid-card scene. And even if this is not the primary reason for the company tanking, I, I don't want to um, like you know, miss out on how these just dull feuds and shitty angles that we're going to talk about. But man, they have to shoulder some of the blame for making this product just so uninteresting. There is actually, at the end of, I want to say June or start of July, I'm just kind of throwing this out there. I just remember this off the top of my head. Meltzer did like a, a poll of the Observer readers of the reasons why they think the numbers have cratered completely. And granted, it's the Observer readership, so you're going to get like, the, it's like the diehards talking here. So it's not like sure. exactly the most accurate. But of the things that are like, what are the big reasons do you think that the company has taken such a downward turn? And they list like eight reasons. And it was things like Hogan's gone, the scandals, uh, Papa Shango angle, so on and so forth. Too much focus on bodybuilding on the TV, stuff like that. And the poll results came in. Hogan is the primary reason. The scandals, decent response. The shit mid-card and the TV being completely boring was like a far bigger thing than I thought it would be going in. Now, granted, again, 
this is the diehard, so they're going to be the ones watching past the Shango thing. They they can accept stupidity because you know we all stick with it anyway, and and stuff like that. How boring the show is going to is going to bother him. But man, as we're about to talk about now with all this stuff in the mid card, it is just dire. There's nothing to look forward to. It was painful watching this television. You know that's why I made the comparison to modern era WWE because. You know, so much of what we watched was, you know, that they would run these ang- one of these crappy feuds. That the, there was the angle to start it, and there was just these follow up interviews. And you're like, I don't want to see this. This is awful. Uh, I want to talk Undertaker. So he so squashes him. Jake Roberts at Mania, which was the right play because Jake is leaving. It just seems like such a waste downgrade having him feud with the fucking Berserker. Your thoughts <laughs> on that feud and angle? Yeah, with I mean, the word of course. Yes, I, so I this was angle number two from this period that was legendary on the playground. The berserker tries to kill the Undertaker and stabs him with a sword, but he moves and the sword's stuck in the ring. Sounded like something that like somebody made up, frankly. I, that and the and the Papishango angle both sounded like things like, you know, it's this is clearly bollocks. My friend's lying to me. This didn't really happen, and then naturally it turns out it did. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about the berserker in a second. Obviously, in, in more detail is the choice, but. Uh, yeah, Berserker, like a, a mini push here, the biggest push he really ever gets. Yeah, so on the subject of the Berserker, okay, I, I actually like the way he works squash matches. I think we've maybe mentioned that even before. He's now mm-hmm. pinning his opponents, by the way, no longer just winning by countout. But what a goofy fucking character. Yeah. Okay. Now, I wrote these notes to you before <laughs> I finished up watching all of the June television. I messaged you yesterday yeah. that I just watched the last hour of the footage that we have uh, yeah. in preparation for the show. In that last hour of June television, the Berserker cuts one of the worst fucking promos I have ever seen in my entire life on the scene <laughs> Oakland. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. So, like you, during the match with Taker, which is like the, the first thing of any note that happens, and it takes weeks to get there after WrestleMania. Like, this is like yeah, four like- weeks after Mania, nothing happens on TV, and then this match does. Yeah, Fuji basically does an inset interview where he challenges The Undertaker. And yeah. so there's a match, and that's where they do the big sword angle. Berserker attacks Undertaker with the shield. Pile drives him on the concrete. Which is cool. Taker then, no sells it. Yeah, and it's not a horrific angle, to be honest. I mean, it's that the sword business is really over the top. I think that actually ruined it. I think in their mind, they're like, oh my God, like people are going to like think about like, there was almost a stabbing on WWF television, but it, it was just so preposterous. I got to say this too. Mr. Fuji totally knew where the bodies were buried. <laughs> I don't know how this, you, you ripped on Whippleman earlier. I don't know how this guy stayed employed for so long. His <laughs> laugh does crack me up, but he's just phoning it in out there. He's just, he knew that Berserker promo that I referenced <laughs> was total shit while he was standing there. And he's just laughing. He's like, I'm getting fucking paid. He's the cleaner. He absolutely knows where the bodies are buried. Yeah. He knows where the pills are hidden. He knows. He knows everything, and that's the that's the reason he's still there. Now, the thing, like, Fuji, not a great choice for the Berserker, but like you say, when you actually watch the match, and again, agree on the squashes, works well in that kind of setting, and it feels like if you know if they brought him in, tweaked him a bit, they hadn't jobbed him out as much as they had, because that was the other thing, too. Like, he just felt like a guy yeah. who'd already, be, already like been established as someone not to pay attention to. Yeah, and now he'd he's- been in the promotion over a year at this yeah. point. This is his first feud, and we talked about it earlier, that he very much, you know, as we're reading through these notes, and we're smarter 
now, you know, 30 years of hindsight, he's clearly just a fill-in for Papa Shango, who had to be bumped up the card. Mm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Which, again, shows how desperate they were that they just pulled this guy up and, uh, let's try the Berserker. Um, yeah. And you, th- you you can kind of be fooled. <laughs> Shango and the Berserker getting moved. I mean, that's, I mean, Liam yeah. mentioned earlier, guys, I mean, this heel depth chart is fucking total dog shit. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- those are the two. You know, again, and this is for, like, the number two and three babyface in the company we're talking about. So... The Brody ripoff act feels like maybe there could be something there because he's a big dude. And then you see him talk and he's standing there with that fucking helmet on, <laughs> talking while he's cross eyed. And you just realize this thing never had a fucking chance. This never had a prayer with him doing this. And, and it's just, you know, and the other thing too, Vince McMahon clearly came up with the line about cold cuts with the oh, sword yes. on the Undertaker because that joke aired liberally for this, this three month period of time from. Perfect to Fuji. Everybody's yucking it up at the idea of cold cuts. Yeah, and of course, their yeah. idea to, yeah, their idea to heat the berserk up e- even further was to cut Gene Okerlund's tie. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. At the end of that I, awesome promo you were talking about. Yeah. I did enjoy how Bobby Heaton said that must be a strong sword because you know Gene only wears the cheapest ties. <laughs> that was the only redeemable part after, like, you know, uh, Undertaker no-selling a pile driver on the concrete. So... Going back again to an earlier point, if you had gotten the title back on Flair, you could have tried, and my points that I just made a couple minutes ago about what a downgrade this is and a waste of Taker feeding with the Berserker after he's just squashed Jake Roberts. If Flair is made champion, if he wins the belt back real quick after WrestleMania 8, Flair and Undertaker's a house show program you could have tried and see how that drew relative to Savage and or Warrior. Yeah, I, I think for sure. I mean, I I definitely would have done that after Flair and Warrior for sure, regardless of where the title goes in the Flair and Warrior situation. But you didn't even have to wait. You could, if you wanted to, like bring Warrior back with something else, and then just do Taker first. I think that would have worked better than than any of these alternatives that they had. The, the stuff that they did, it felt like there were still other options. Even though I don't know if it would have made a noticeable dent, I definitely think that there was there was. There was life in some of these guys working together that they just they just didn't go with. Yeah, and to our earlier point, heel depth chart so weak. Yeah, you need the a heel champion here because there's just more options for him to work with. Savage, Warrior, Taker. Again, though, mm-hmm. I don't know how much uh, it would have drawn. I, I don't think Flair and Undertaker would have set the business on fire. Really, I mean, there's just a lot of problems here. Uh, not a problem for Dave is listening to Rick Martel trying to say Tatanka because, quote, it's like you've got this arrogant European model who sounds like he's stuttering while doing interviews. Well, I don't know what Dave was into, but I very much felt like Rick Martel was stuttering in every promo he did during this yeah. period of time. Uh, we've got to bring up this Tatanka interview. Uh, a, uh, vignette. <laughs> I don't know. Was he supposed to be back on the reservation that's, that's certainly like, the impression I got. He's visiting his homeland after he got his eagle feathers stolen. Yeah, more on that in a second. But, you know, he's telling the he's explaining to the kids the significance of Rick Martell's stealing his eagle feathers. They looked so bored. They're being told to stay off drugs. This was a sad state of affairs. <laughs> and you mentioned Martell stealing the eagle feathers. Okay, so that's the angle to keep this uh, program up after they work mania to talk to Martell. We've got too much recycling of old angles. Oh, this Martel, is the killer for me. Martel spraying arrogance in Tatanka's eyes. You know, in 1990, 
we credited Jake Roberts, and I remember specifically saying few could have made that angle work as well as he did Yeah, with the selling of it. Remember? I mean, he was out for weeks. They would check yeah. in with him with the doctor. Is my vision back? Well, here, Tatanka gets sprayed in the eyes with air gets, and he's just kind of fine the next week. Yeah, Tatanka's crap. <laughs> well, he is, but, like, I mean, he... We've seen arrogance to the eyes of baby faces before. And Jake Roberts, it was such a big deal. And here we are. It's like a year and a half later. Eh, well, he's fine. And he, his yeah, eyes it's, it, He it's, washed it out with some water. It's lazy. And it, it, this ties back to Shango, where I really feel like with Patterson gone, my impression when I watched this period, and it's why, again, it's why I love talking about periods of time like this. Not because we just, we're just slamming things, but it's, it's like trying to figure out why it was what it was. And I, I think that with Shango... Without Patterson there to kind of rein Vince in, some of the worst tendencies of Vince to be liberal with what the crowd will believe, they go they go over the line and they they they, they cross over into stuff that people are just not gonna buy. They're not gonna get into it, and that's the key with Shango. It's like okay, we'll believe that Taker can no sell something because and, and you know babyfaces no sell stuff you know historically anyway in wrestling area for the big comebacks, yeah. but like we can we we'll work with you. But when it comes to pretending that voodoo is real, we're out. We're, we're checked out. And with stuff like this, too, it's like, okay, there was this great angle that happened before. But we're not going to actually look at what was done to make it great. It wasn't just the fact that he sprayed him in the eyes that made it good. It's the follow-up. It's the what's mm-hmm. next. It's, it's how how do you show. It's not just Savage injuring Steamboat's throat. It's him learning how to talk again as bad as that was. It's, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's in the follow-up. It's making it feel like it's a big deal afterwards as well. And there was one angle we will talk about in the mid-card where the follow-up was very good, but this is not one of them. No. Uh, there was a funny Bobby Heenan line during a Tatanka squash match. I wanted to bring this up. Uh, it comes after Monsoon mentioned that Jay Strongbow used to dance like that. You know, Tatanka, the fired-up babyface comeback. You know, mm-hmm. the stereotypical man of American dance. Yeah, so Monsoon says, Jay Strongbow used to dance like that. Bobby Heenan goes, there was music in 1908? <laughs> that popped me. That was one of the few highlights of this several uh, months of television that we watched. Heenan actually salvages a lot of these stupid angles. He doesn't salvage because they're garbage, but like if something stupid happens on television, Heenan will be there with a line like that to just like kind of underpin how crap it is really, I suppose. But it, it, no, it I, brings some amusement to the program at least. Yeah, God, with worse commentators, and I know you've got <laughs> one in mind here in a second, th- this would have just been almost unwatchable, unlistable, the television. Uh, Tatanka, by the way, still undefeated, of course. He wins a 40-man battle royal uh, at a TV taping, last eliminating IRS and both Beverly Brothers. Uh, this can be seen on the Coliseum video Bashed in the USA. Yes, a, a fine purchase that I made in my youth uh, featuring Mr. Perfect stamp collecting, I believe. Um, <laughs> that's right! This, this is the first 40-man battle royal, but not the only one. In fact, I th- there was also one on the Invasion 92 video that I think they also claim was the first time they ever did one that Bulldog wins. Um, which is where village idiot Alfred Hayes is going to get a mention. And I don't want to, yeah, we're about to, to, to slate the WWF for some of the, uh, the one note jokes that are, that are going on in this company. So I hope that people don't feel the same way about my bashing of Hayes. But since the 40 man battle Royal where Bulldog one also took place within this period of time, it was in June, June 1st, I think, uh, when Bulldog wins the battle Royal, I've just got to point out that was on invasion 92, the video and the commentary on the match was done by Sean Mooney and Alfred Hayes. Uh, okay and never good never good and at one point as they're talking about the participants in the match it's about halfway through and alfred hayes says you know there's owen hart in the ring 
Hacksaw, I see Hacksaw Jim Duggan still in there, flailing away. Not only was Hacksaw Jim Duggan not in the ring anymore. Oh, no. Hacksaw Jim Duggan was not in the match to begin with. Oh, my. Alfred Hayes, pay attention. How did Lord Hayes talk about a guy stealing a living? I mean, he had to be hammered at that point. So, apparently, they were running these 40-man battle royals quite a bit around this time because Tatanka wins the one. Uh, mm-hmm. Bulldog wins another that you mentioned uh, that did take place, yes, June 1st in Hamilton, Ontario at the Cops Coliseum. Well, on June 2nd in Ottawa at a wrestling challenge taping, the Berserker comes out ahead in a different 40-man battle royal, last eliminating Kerry Von Erich and Skinner. Yes, I think that, actually, I'm not sure if I think that was televised as well. So, uh, um, I'm trying to see, I don't know where it can, maybe it can be found on maybe it's on YouTube. a video or something. It's, it's definitely okay. on YouTube, though. I remember the the I think the, the June month does have the ending of that battle yes. royal if you if you okay. uh, look it's, at a certain individual. Uh, sure, it was actually on primetime on yeah, July there you go. 6th. Okay, there, you go. there we go, it was on primetime. Uh, all right, so. Lord Al Hayes doesn't even know who's in a 40-man battle royal. He's got got 40 chances to name a guy, and he misses. (laughs) Good Lord. And anyway, so these, 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 back to Tatanka briefly, because I'm going to, I'm going to, I've watched the TV for July, uh, and Tatanka is just awful. So again, I don't think I realized as a youngster just how useless the character Tatanka is. But these one-note joke heels that we're talking about here, the methods of getting heat are just so dull. You know, not only the arrogance in the eyes, again, but, you know, Mountie shocking Slaughter with a bigger shock stick. <laughs> he's know, got a bigger he's, stick! He's, yeah, the, the great American scream machine, as he calls it. The, oh, you know, fuck, we, that was bad. Oh, yeah, and Slaughter deserved it anyway, because he was the one that started by talking shit about Mountie for no reason. But anyway, <laughs> it's, it's a shock stick angle, so, okay. We've so, seen we, that before! Yes, Reaper Man chokes out the Bulldog with his rope, which he'd done to El Matador previously as well. So it's like we're just getting these these retread angles. And and Kyle, we are not doing this podcast without playing <laughs> Davy Boy Smith's absolutely shocking performance in a promo, a taped promo, no less. So this was not this was probably not even the, the fucking first take. This was the one that made the air, <gasps> which was so god awful that I am going to play it right now in full. You know, rip-off man, I mean repo man, I was in a town about a month ago wrestling and someone stole my car and you happened to be in that arena that night and someone watched you steal my car, repo man. Well, let me tell you something. (laughs) It wasn't my car. It was a rental car. Now you're going to come and try and repossess me. Kyle, the only thing that I could come up with was that he may have drank some of his own orange juice before this promo went because <laughs> he was so he's so slow to form to go from like one sentence to the other. It's like he can't he can't he can't use this language that he was born with. <laughs> so I just I just and, and reportedly he earned himself a suspension not for the god awful promo, uh, but for other reasons. He didn't work in the month of May. No, he didn't. So, you know, things got better for Davy Boy, but yeah, he deserved a suspension after a shite promo like that. <laughs> Speaking of shite, uh, Paul and promos, Paul Ellering <laughs> does one where he brought out a puppet named, quote, Freckles, 
who was apparently a prized possession of the LOD when they were kids, said Dave Meltzer. It likely won't air because they screwed it up and the crowd reaction was so <laughs> bad that it wasn't usable. Now, did that convince Vince and company to maybe abandon this angle? No, it does not because the <laughs> puppet eventually does debut, but as Rocco and in a taped vignette, yeah. Liam, this was obviously atrocious. Oh, hideous. Absolutely hideous. And, uh, you know, I love that they did it once live and they thought, you know what? It's not that the idea is bad. The name needs to change from Freckles. It's too stupid. <laughs> it needs to be Rocco instead. Not only was this promo where they're walking around like the slums of Chicago. It's allegedly where they used to live. I mean, were we supposed yeah. to infer that their house had burned down? Was there some sort of terrorist attack? Apparently so. Apparently they used to live together. I don't know why, but they did. Um <laughs> It's it's awful. Animal is his usual um, blistering self as a promo, explaining how Rocco was their friend growing up and how, uh, you know, they used to practice wrestling on the dummy and things like that. Yeah, which is a cheap plug for the wrestling buddies. Yes, which, you know, I, you know, I can at least appreciate that a little bit. But Ellering, who I need to talk about in a minute, but he comes out at the end of this with, he's holding this fucking lifeless dummy. And he just comes out with, I think this is the best thing to ever happen to the Legion of Doom. <laughs> Mike Eggstrand is just stood there. Oh, he Awesome look on his face. Like, he does not agree. No, I'll tell you, Road Warrior Hawk, he's looking to quit right there, I think. I think he knew it was over. He might as well just walked off set and never worked for this promotion again. <laughs> so, yeah, again, Rocco, it's a fucking dummy Paul Ellering doing a ventriloquist act. Of all the ways to try to reheat the Legion of Doom, this may have been one of the worst possible things you could have come up with. This, this, this is atrocious. And look, this is the thing too. I did not know, as a kid, I, you know, Paul Ellering, I didn't know about the history with LOD. Okay. So when he shows up, there are, look, there are, there are elements to Paul Ellering I like. I like his voice. Mm-hmm. He's got, I, I kind of like the look. But when he's standing there doing these vignettes, these promos, the first one that takes place after WrestleMania. Where again, oh, my God. Where they're talking about the Beverly Brothers still. There's yeah. All three of them get a chance to talk. That went on forever. It's just like the WrestleMania 8 promo. They did like the, It was like the Mania 8 promo where they both, they all get two turns to talk. They go around the loop. And they did the same. And Ellering's delivery is just so fucking slow. Like, he goes from, like, he, like, bellows out one sentence like he's King Curtis Ikea in Dungeon of Doom, just bellowing out words that feels like he's not even making a point, even if he is, just because of how long he takes. And then he'll just take these long, dramatic pauses before he gets to the next one. And then, like, and again, it's like, Hawk is, like, so charismatic and such a good talker. And I'm sure Ellering could have been used in a way that was effective, but this wasn't it. No, it wasn't, and... Look, the LOD was pretty much on 14 minutes and 59 seconds. They're 15 minutes WWF fame mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, two guys that would be around for a while and, you know, were real highlights of years to come. Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, they're feuding for the Intercontinental title. But there's no real angle here. Again. Uh, Shawn cites needing to restore the prestige of the Intercontinental title, which upset me greatly. I couldn't believe... <laughs> That they were doing that back then, because that's always the kiss of death in the modern era when someone like just t- says the Intercontinental Champion sucks and we need <laughs> to restore the, the prestige <laughs> of the Intercontinental. I wonder if this was the first time that I was phrase say. was used. 
I was going to say that. I wonder if this is, the, is if this is uh, you know, exhibit A of when they would do this. Because they it feels like every five years this comes up. Yeah, but uh, we mentioned Sean was um, challenging Savage on the European tour a few times. Not a believable challenger for the world title. Even the matches were good between he and Savage. You know, obviously him and Sean was a logical deal for the Intercontinental title. But no angle. You know, you're doing, you know, the, the shock stick with Slaughter Mountie, the hog tying with Bulldog and Repo, the fucking sword with Undertaker Berserker. These two, it's just like, yeah, you know, Sean wants the Intercontinental title. And, you know, neither was a great promo yet. Sean in particular. Yeah, yes, he's, he's still getting his confidence. He's still trying to kind of you know, work out the kinks of the character and figure out what he is. It really does feel like Sherry's presence helps him a lot early, especially in the one uh, on the podium with Jean, where even though she doesn't say anything, just her you know, doing her thing and being like, playing secondary to him helps give him a credibility that it feels like he can't really give himself yet because he hasn't been put in a position to, and he's done no big angle. You know, perfect, and then Finkel doing the announcing that you know, Shawn Michaels has left the building starts during this period and i like that and this is mm-hmm. this this is where it gets a little bit baffling because it's like you've got all these like undercard feuds as we, that we've talked about repo you know heels who aren't hot with baby faces that are even colder like your know, mounty and, and fucking slaughter and repo and bulldog who hasn't done anything for a long time martel and tatanka who's, who's waiting for his first you know big thing to happen still it feels like and here you've got and they're doing retread stuff meanwhile brett and sean Two very fresh, very new people in the roles they're in, and they don't do anything with it. Yeah, do you think it's a case that they didn't want to beat either guy? I mean, the, you know, they obviously they're working around the houses, and 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 Sean's losing, and Brett's keeping the Intercontinental title. But I'm very surprised that they that you know they didn't run some sort of angle that this was yeah. the one mid card feud that there was no big angle. Um, Brett Hart cut a promo in Germany. Uh, on the uh, show that was taped on the European tour, that he is, quote, in it for the wrestling, not the girls. <laughs> Unless they're German girls. <laughs> yes, in- yes. Unless they're German girls. And again, uh, just to demonstrate how slow the TV is. I mean, it sounds like we're talking about a lot of different stuff going on, but it, it does feel like a slog. And Brett is interviewed on the podium by Gene in June. And they're talking about the Mania 8 match with Roddy Piper like it just happened last week because nothing has happened in the interim to, to Bret Hart other than like Shawn Michaels is like throwing this you know, challenge out he wants to be Intercontinental Champion. And of course, this is you know Bret kind of throws a couple of bobs away. But in the end, he just kind of dedicates the Mania win two months after it's happened to his dad. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're just cutting into that promos basically yeah. in the weeks yeah. after, you know, where Shawn's talking about the prestige of the Intercontinental title. So yeah, kind of disappointing, uh, you know, that we didn't get any real angle for those two, of course, is a feud that would, uh, you know, off and on behind the scenes and on camera for many years. And yeah. uh, eventually okay. they'll work uh, on pay-per-view. We'll talk about that when it okay. happens. And like we said, considering the amount of time given to some of the other schlock that they're, they're, they're turning out, it feels like this kind of slows Sean's progression a little bit, to be honest. Even though, again, it's not, it's not like it's bad for him, but I feel like they could have heated him up and got him really, really quite nicely, uh, quite nicely going during this period of time. And they just didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you talk about the television. <clears throat> Again, big picture. Maybe it's just a case of me knowing the massive change that takes place in television the following year, obviously, with Raw. Yeah. 
But man, the television format of Superstars and Challenge starts feeling really stale around yeah. this point. Like, yeah, I it agree. Just, it feels like they needed to do something new. And of course they do. And we'll compliment them when the time comes. But also, no more funeral parlor. No more barbershop. We've mentioned it several times. Gene Okerlund doing podium interviews. A lot of them, yeah. Kind of interesting that they got rid of, I mean, you know, with Hogan gone, I guess, you know, why are we keeping beefcake on the payroll? But, <laughs> you, know, you know, pretty interesting that they got rid of those, uh, you know, specialty interview sets that had been a hallmark of the weekend TV for really a long time. I mean, yes, they've been doing podium interviews for a long time, too, but kind of weird. Yeah, and it kind of makes you think that, like, with the amount of like stagnation that they have, with you know so many of these heels who were just kind of again doing the thing they've done before one more time, they wouldn't have tried to do something new. Whether it was you know, um, you know, Rick Martel's fashion strip or something like that, or you know, I don't know, uh, anything like that. You know, want to get somebody doing something so that it's like a, a new a new step, even if it's a, a new type of the same step. It's something fresh. A new guy getting a lot of TV time. Yeah, and there is one change in the television that takes place uh, around this time, during this time, I should say. Superstars is no longer Superstars of Wrestling. Mm, yes. So, many of you know this, that, you know, the Superstar shows from like 86 through 91, they now, when they're shown, the of wrestling is blurred out. Yeah. And that is because... It was around this time that WF lost a lawsuit. Uh, there was a guy named Albert Patterson who was running a promotion out of Milwaukee who said he had the trademark to Superstars of Wrestling for his TV show. And he did. And so they had to just change it to Superstars. They're no longer <laughs> Superstars of Wrestling. For those who have always wondered about that, yes, it was this time. And that's why on the network for you guys, Peacock for us here in the States, that Superstars starts during this period. So yeah. by the way, by the, we should mention that too. If you want, you can watch, you don't have to go to YouTube if you want. I mean, if you want to put yourself through it and watch all of the television, you can do it. Now, you can. The all, all the weekly up. TV's on. Yep. It's on there to watch and you can, you can enjoy the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. So to summarize this dire mid-card situation, it's a direct byproduct of so many failed characters they've introduced over the last two years. And we yeah. have talked about how many times in the coming and going sections <laughs> have we brought up this shit characters that just don't get over. You know, yeah. we talked about the berserker doing nothing for a year, but look at some of the other heels they've introduced skinners, repo mans. You know, if you go back to the end of 1990, Saba Simba, Shane Douglas, I'm just spitballing guys off the top yeah. of my head. They had such a strong hit rate in the late eighties with the new people they were bringing in. And because quite frankly, they had a lot more places to take people from as that dried up. And it was really just WCW. They would hope someone got bored there or yep. contract negotiations would break down. There just wasn't a lot of people, a lot of places, I should say, to pull from. And you get Slaughter Mountie and Bulldog Repo Man and just a really depth shy roster. What do you think about that? Is it, it, there's just the hit other than Undertaker and the Shawn Michaels heel turn. There's really been no decent new characters introduced no. over the last two years. No new creations. That's the key. The, the 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 introduction of guys like Flair and Sid, which they you know the execution lacked, I think, in both cases, which we, as we've talked about. Um, the 
again, even like a Shango, you know, and they're pushing him, but like it's just the character that's just not the way that it was done doesn't stick. And it feels like, we, you know, again, there's so many, like we, that we've mentioned a few there that have stuck around, but we haven't even, you know, the big bully Busics who have come and yeah. gone and, and meant nothing and just uh, just filler. You can see, you could see this coming in 91. You know, mm-hmm. especially near the second half of 91, you can see the depth is really starting to struggle a little bit. But when you take Hogan off the top... IRS had to be put in a tag team because he stunks. Yeah, yeah, IRS in a tag. Another you know character that would have died on the vine and would have been a Skinner type had it not been mm-hmm. for the fact that they threw him with DBRC and saved him. Um, there's just there's just too many of them. And 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 they're just still there. Like, cause they, you know, if not them, then who? In, in their minds. Now, granted, there were people around that they could have got who could have livened things up. I'm not saying it would have turned the promotion around, but they, they would have made things a little bit more interesting at least. Any names you'd like to throw out right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, they, they could have tried to get Lawler earlier. He's not doing anything that's that's you know life critical right now. Is it's the USWA years for Lawler? Funk, you know, Terry Funk is working in Global, so he's around. Paul Orndorff w- was back in Smoky Mountain Wrestling at this point, and he ended up going to WCW, having a, a decent you know mid card little run there. There's people around who even if they're not going to set the world on fire at least it can feel fresh or interesting or at least you know new and it's like why am i watching a repo man promo making dog jokes <laughs> when the business is going down like yeah and well you know it's interesting though funk and orndorf they've been there before and man it really didn't feel like there was just some new exciting talent they could grow, although to their, and we're going to talk about it in the next episode and the episode after that, they do start introducing better characters, particularly on the heel side. Yes. They do. So they, they do address this moving forward. But in the early part of 92, the very early part of 1992, Wade Keller wrote an article. This was in uh, the January 23rd edition of the torch when, you know, rumors were about that Hogan was leaving and he wrote top 10 possible WWF flagship wrestlers. Life after Hogan does not have to be a Hogan clone like Justice. Here was his top 10. This was a curious top 10. But it also speaks to, I don't know if there just wasn't a lot of big, you know, like kind of big galaxy ideas out there, but this was kind of an uninspired list, I thought, from Wade. Number one was Ric Flair. And I think we both agree, if you don't job Flair on the houses every week, he should have been the world champion and a strong, like he was the best bet to be world champion Yeah, coming off of mania. But uh, Roddy Piper was his number two. Mm. Again, Roddy was, le- you know, this was written before WrestleMania Piper leaves. Um, I, I, he's been around forever. I don't think that's going to do much. Shawn Michaels was his number three to his credit. Yeah. And Wade even wrote over the long term, Michaels might be the best choice. So credit there mm-hmm. to Wade. Uh, number four was Randy Savage. Uh, Number five, Bret Hart. Uh, Interesting comment. Hart could be long-term, although probably does not have a dynamic enough personality to carry the WWF for a long period of time. Which is clearly how Vince saw him, too. Yeah. Ted DiBiase's on this list. Again, Uh, I don't know about that. Yeah, not a 92. Kurt Hennig, uh, you know, he Wade brings up the back, but, you know, Kurt's a guy who they tried as a top-level heel, and he didn't work. Big boss man. Again, that feels a little bit. That's like, a stretch. Yeah. Uh, what a real stretch. Um, Wayne Bloom. Fucking hell. Stretch is a stretch from here to Ohio. 
Yeah, Wayne Bloom? Is and a not top- Shaker Heights either. I'm talking about <laughs> Cleveland, where you are. Yeah, well, Shaker Heights is, I'll tell you what, a good friend of mine. I, I referenced this, I think, before the pod. Yes, buddy. yes. Alan lives in Shaker Heights. It's about 30 minutes east, 30 minutes east of me, not even 30. But Wayne Bloom? <laughs> Look, Wayne, I know that you're sticking up for your Minnesota boys, but there's no chance that Wayne Bloom is going to be the top star in the WWF after Hulk Hogan. No, that's Blake Beverly, just so, or Bo Beverly, yes. pardon me, uh, for those keeping score at home. And Jake Roberts also made this. this. Again, this was a list made prior to WrestleMania. A lot of those guys left. So, interesting though just because we, we were talking about all these these crap characters they've introduced and it feels like so many of them the skinners and the irs's the berserkers the bullies it feels like they're brought in specifically to fill the lower to mid card like mm-hmm. they aren't even really brought in to be big stars which is where things do change a little bit moving forward other than that the real successes they had were either you know bringing wcw guys or turning established baby faces here like jake which we'd had and that's the other thing when you look at these this crew there's really not a lot of people left who you could do that with i mean the you know, fucking jim duggan is about the only other one that i could think mm. of that you haven't already done it with and i don't think anybody's really clamoring for that at that point no uh, no so it's like you really there's there's not a ton of options so i guess the need to reach for some new blood i guess so but is that was there like a talent at the time who was like a newer tech because we're bringing you know even you and i mean i'm not gonna disagree that lawler funk orndorff have been better than some of the guys they brought in but you know except for lawler it's been there done that wade's list is mostly guys who've been in the promotion for several years it, actually all of them had been in the promotion for several years uh, i guess with the exception of wayne the train bloom <laughs> it, was there some obvious guy who hadn't been in the promotion yet that you would have been looking to bring in to, that could have turned around business right away uh, i don't think anybody's turning around business right away that's what was the of... deal with vader's contract around this time vader was a weird one because he was he had like i think he was working in japan yes he was he's working in japan as well so i think he had like the multiple contracts thing going he probably would have given it up for you know for for, for a big money wf run except that they didn't really they didn't really offer a lot of that there's a lot of opportunity as we know so and of course as we mentioned in our previous episode lex luger was brought in but there's there's the no compete uh because he had a no compete for wrestling their big idea was to put him on the wbf television yes we will get to that in a minute but maybe that's who they were thinking I, i don't know could they have made a play for sting that's the only thing again. But these guys are the ones who are like locked into deals because they want the guaranteed money from Turner, and they weren't going to budge unless, like in yeah. Vader's case, he only went because he got fired. He would have sat on that WCW contract forever, and Lex probably would have too, apart from the fact that he's going to get a bigger deal to go to the WBF. Yeah, and have to work less, just basically pose for a year. So, all right, top of the card stinks. The middle of the card stinks, except for Brett and Sean. What about some newcomers? Well, no help there either, really. Uh, and there's not many uh, newcomers either brought in. Usually this is a pretty lengthy section. Uh, it, maybe it's lengthy this time, but only because we're going deeper into the few newcomers they're trying. Uh, Kevin Wachholz debuts as Nails, not the convict. Uh, that was the name that was originally reported in the newsletters. But he is Nails. Dave writes, wearing, quote, ludicrously high lifts in his boots and handcuffed Big Boss Man for a beating that lasted more than six minutes. <laughs> it actually got a lot of heat, much to the delight of one of our listeners. I got a, a Stuart, uh, oh, God, Savider? Is, 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 Savider? 
I, if I butchered your name, Stuart, I'm so sorry. He's a loyal listener of Top, and I asked him to. I even messaged him yesterday. I said, can you pr- text me how you pronounce your last name? Because I want to give you a shout here on the program. Stuart, you know, I know that he's, he's always had this fascination in our Top Rope Nation group with nails. He always <laughs> brings this up as, like, one of, like, the most just out-of-nowhere strong debuts for a new character. And it was pretty strong. Do you think it was an effective angle? Just, I mean, he just comes out there. They've been hyping this new character since Wrestle before WrestleMania with yeah. the vignettes and he just comes out of the crowd and beats the shit out of the big boss man for like Dave said more than six minutes yeah I do in, in isolation it's really good I will say when you watch the TV every week it does have a feel of yet another mid-card babyface getting the ever-living shit beaten out of him in what is being sold as a heavy devastating attack um, but this is the best of the bunch by far and it's it's the best built up of the bunch by far as well gets a lot more heat than the others too um you know kurt hennig <laughs> kurt hennig was perfect at a lot of things but commentary wasn't one of them but he was pretty good in this angle talking about how you know how does it feel boss man how does it feel now after you used to beat the shit out of nails and nails is just you know he, this, this is a, this is a very very good debut it is and you know you talk about the television being repetitive and you know all these baby faces going out on a gurney. This nails boss man angle was the third stretcher job angle for a baby face in May alone. <laughs> yeah. Well, you seen that they just bought like a, a, a bulk pile of them when they got, they started to sit angle and they just had nothing to do with them. So they just, they just wheel them all out on stretches. Yeah. But slaughter had gone out on one with the Mountie yeah. and then bulldog and repo man. So, mm-hmm. but th- this Again. was, I think the best, uh, uh, well, certainly this was the best. Of the oh, three. by miles. Miles. Dog shit. Uh, I mentioned the vignettes <laughs> teasing nails uh, actually started airing prior to Mania. Kind of a creative idea for a boss man feud as opposed to just plugging him against some existing heel he'd yet to work with. Kind of to your earlier point, like, you know, okay, well, what's boss man going to do post Mania? All right, let's look at the heel depth chart. Who has he not worked with? Let's, or, mm. or are we going to turn a baby face who's been around here for a while to feud with boss man? No, let's bring in a new character, you know, that is unique. To his, you know, the existing character we have with Boss Man. At the end of the day, though, the problem was that Nails just sucked in the ring. <laughs> well, I mean, and he wasn't very good on uh, interviews either. No, or just over on television. Yeah, you know, there's that one promo where they. There's a lot to say about the logistics of this and and the presentation of Nails. He looks a bit like Jeff Daniels, which I which I only realized watching yes. this back of, of Dumb and yes, Dumb Fame yes, Speed. Um, but I feel like, okay, so on that point, you know, he, he's doing the squash matches on TV to silence. He's walking out to, with no music. And it feels like this, this is, they, they're missing something here. So Nails' debut was taped on April 29th, and it didn't air until May 30th. Um, Nails' first TV match was taped on May 18th before the TV angle with the boss man had actually aired. So nobody oh. live had a clue who he was when he walked out. But he's, he's not a guy who they associate. Somebody would have been like, oh, well, that's probably the guy that they, he's talking about the boss man on TV. But they didn't know who he was. So, yeah, and then they, they take more matches of, of Nails on June 1st, which is like a day or two after the angle finally airs. And apparently the folks live didn't care that much about it because they, they also didn't react to them very big either. Um... I did like, by the way, the, the fact that in his first squash match, he used the electric chair as a finish. 
Um, yes, he did. Which I don't even know if it was called that yet, but it was, you know, quite quite a nice little bit of coincidence if it wasn't. Um, the first Java sucked that he had that he had to work with anyway and just couldn't even take a back bump for the finish. He was just pitiful. No, no I wonder if that's why they didn't do the electric chair anymore because that it looked so crappy. Yeah, it looked like shit. So they just had him choking people out afterwards. I really think that there's there's a lot. Which was these, no better. Which was no better. Uh, I, I, you know, I feel like the idea of having him in squash matches is completely wrong. Like, if you're going to do that, you know, that they come through the crowd, rogue entrance. Honestly, and this is something that I think you'll agree with. I almost have an educated guess that you're going to agree with this. Okay. The blueprint for Nails, even though it hadn't existed yet, but what they did with Kane, where he just does run-ins. And he just, you know, shows up at the house shows and chokes somebody out. And he, you build up the fact that, you know, this guy's running roughshod. No one can control him. Until and he's gonna call out the boss man and yeah, all this stuff. You, yeah, making him like just another guy that wrestles in the World Wrestling Federation who happens to still be wearing his convict suit. Like, yeah, can you bring up your point that you make later in the notes because it's a very good one. We're gonna talk about the follow up of this angle in a second as well. But I do love how Nails is debut, which is done so well. The the actual angle itself at the end of it, Vince is just incredulous, screaming about how a man like this does not belong in decent society. So of course. He's welcome with open arms and a full-time contract, gainfully employed by the World Wrestling Federation, the current scourge of society in 1992. Yeah, um, doesn't belong in decent society, but by God, he got a job at the next TV tape. Oh my God, our locker room, that's the place for you, sir. Yeah, Billy yeah, Jack like, Gates couldn't get it, but Nails can. <laughs> <laughs> this is the company that hired Mel Phillips. You know? yeah. Whoa, yeah, boy. It's, you know... And, and, and again, you know, while we're on that subject, Nails would, of course, after we talked about all that scandal last... Last week, this is the second person we'll talk about that has been sexually assaulted by Vince McMahon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part five. <laughs> Stick with us, everybody. What but, a... Yeah. But anyway, so, and again, like, just <laughs> things like... <laughs> as, as incredible as the debut was, the departure is even more stunning. It's spectacular. What a, yeah. what a way to go. But, uh, yeah, so, and again, like, the no music thing, just, like, I feel like, the, you know, the run-ins, not really wrestling that much. And I know that the reason I say that you'll like the Kane comparison is because I've heard you make the comparison before about how when Kane debuted, it very much felt like a Nails to Boss Man thing, where this is a character yes. created for The Undertaker. Nails, a character created for The Boss Man. And the less they had Kane as just another guy, the better off he was. And I feel like that was the case with Nails, Except that they just made him just another guy. They had him doing the promos with Gene. They had nothing outside the box other than the debut. And that feels like a missed opportunity. Him just like, you know, appearing as the random guy. You don't know when he's going to strike or who he's going to get. And he's like, the WWF wants nothing to do with this guy. But he's just, you know, challenging the boss man. Challenging the boss man. And he's going to just keep appearing until the boss man comes back to fight him. That to me is the way to go with Nails. Yeah, I think you laid it out. They could, again, at the end of the day, he wasn't good. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, on interviews or wrestling. in the ring. So it's it's going to be limited, but they hadn't stopped other guys who weren't good and limited from getting over in monster heel roles before in the history of this business. Uh, Meltzer says that the Nails voice distortion is the best thing about the character and the only good thing about it. Mm. Uh, that said, reportedly, although Nails has kind of been a flop early on on television, he's over huge on the house shows as a monster. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, but okay. uh, I'll take his word for it. But uh, Big Boss Man scheduled to be injured, quote-unquote, until SummerSlam, so Dave suggests he takes up softball <laughs> <That's good. laughs> uh, to sell the injuries now. 
On television, they air photos of a banged up and bruised mm. boss man, which Dave says the special effects guy did a super job on and was actually more effective than the initial angle itself. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. This is, to me, this is my abiding memory of this angle before I ever saw it was I saw the magazine pictures and just thought, what the hell happened to the boss man? Um, I'm assuming you saw these at the time as well. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I didn't page through, actually, now that I see uh, you referenced WF Magazine. I didn't page through for this podcast to see anything, any, you know, because we had so many notes already. I was like, Jesus, do we want to <laughs> add, you know, like freaking Keith Elliott Greenberg's take on Tatanka Rick Martell? I don't <laughs> think so. But, yeah. Uh, but great stuff. And, 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 and a, you know, a great way, again, just to make it feel like a bigger deal. Because, again, that's just, it, it, you know, the execution and how you build up the severity. Reaper Man chokes out Bulldog with his rope, and Bulldog appears doing like an inset promo where they kind of note that he's got a red mark around his neck. But then it's kind of like, you know, as soon as it's like gone, you forget about it immediately. Whereas this, yeah, they have, they keep having like first perfect and then Oakland calling him up at home to see how he is, and they're showing the photos what you know, as as kind of the, the B-roll over the over the, the phone call. Which did include the great line of Mr. Perfect saying, Hey boss man. What was it like getting the most severe beating in the history of the WWF? <laughs> and Bossman replying with, "It was rough." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, to your point, there was some tender love and care put into this, right? Yeah, yeah. They actually sold the angle a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, yeah, but uh, uh, you know, and and Bossman was out, okay, to put over, you know, the injuries, so. There we go, and, and this is a feud that would go on for a large portion of 1992, and would yeah. have one of the most surreal endings maybe in in, in history, at least uh, up until this point uh, in the WWF. But on the babyface side, as we now switch gears, uh, Nails was the big heel addition to the roster. But babyfaces, Crush is in with an absolutely abysmal set of vignettes. His past as a member of Devolution, despite using the same name, totally ignored. <laughs> Never happened. This is the new guy. This is uh, this is pitiful stuff. But this is this is where you see whether it's the again the lack of vision. There was a line that I sent you, which was quite funny from the Observer, where I, I can't remember what month it was from, but I sent it you the other day, where Meltzer goes, "This will show." that Pat Patterson, this period of time, will show that Pat Patterson maybe was not the creative genius behind the director, but that Vincent Mann really was. Well, <laughs> yeah. These vignettes will tell you all you need to know about that because the idea of you know, Crush talking about how when he was a kid, he loved crushing things. And then you get this stupid days of our lives wave effect into a black and white scene of him as a child crushing a Coke can. And that's it. Yep, that's it. He just, yeah, he was a kid. He just would crush cans. And he's just that guy's fucking stupid smile, that goofy mullet. And he's wearing like, you know, that, that woman's lycra bra thing that they used to wear in like American Gladiators. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, instead of his singlet, it's just like this, this needs some more thought. And maybe it comes down to the fact that Brian Adams is just not that interesting. But there's a, there was a way, surely, to, to do something with Crush. To make him you know, more likable and interesting than this, because this goes on for a long time. This like, oh my god, like all summer. Yeah, <laughs> like, this is a regular feature on the program. We can't wait to see what Crush did next as a kid. 
Yeah, uh, well, it, none of it was interesting. It was a very boring childhood in Hawaii. Uh, of course, things got a little more interesting in the mid-90s, but uh, maybe a different <laughs> podcast for a different time. Uh, April 18th edition of Superstars, the Texas Tornado returns from his suspension, and he is back with, quote, a newfound commitment to the WWF religion and country. Wow. This did not last long as he was pulled from house shows in short order, uh, replaced by Jim Brunzel. Although, Von Erich, uh, it was said he was not suspended. Mm. Well, I guess that commitment didn't last that long. It was sad to hear that he lost his faith in America, though. WWF, religion, and country. Yes, yes, of course. If you go back. Uh, maybe he was to... offended. Maybe he wrote a paper on Rodney King as well. Maybe he did. He was that let the... My guess is he didn't even know that was going on at the time. <laughs> uh, going back to, it was part one that we talked about. Yes, because it was in, uh, you know, right around the St. Louis drug raid yeah. uh, that Kerry, you know, obviously had to be taken off the road. His problems well known, and, and obviously it ends it ends very poorly uh, at the start of 1993. Uh, we'll, we'll hit on that when we get to it, but. With Sid gone, Harvey Whippleman needs someone to manage because, you know, we got to take care of Harvey. He's on the yeah. payroll. You can't let a talent like that go to waste. So Kamala is brought back after quitting in 1987. Uh, Kim Chi being played by Steve Lombardi uh, on TV. This was truly remarkable. Uh, it was <laughs> WBF Body Stars. Vincent Perfect start talking about Kamala or about how Kamala and Jane Fonda could do a Tarzan and Jane movie. McMahon, of course, said that Ted Turner could play kimchi. Oh, <laughs> that'll show him. That'll show him. Well, I mean, if ever there was a more fitting retort to the fact that Ted Turner concocted this conspiracy against Vince, where all of these young boys came out of the woodwork to accuse officials of, of their uh, dirty behavior, which, of course, as we said, was Ted Turner's doing, according to Vince. Uh, this is the way you respond. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's unbelievable. I, to be honest, I kind of respect it, to be honest with you. <laughs> Fucking Ted Turner is Kim Chi. What a thought. Uh, Dave, around this, uh, during this time, relates the previously untold origin of Kamala's name, by the way. Jerry Lawler and Jerry Jarrett wanted to do an African Savage character in Memphis years ago, so they were reading an issue of National Geographic about a doctor doing research in Uganda. That doctor's name? Kamala. So, like there that. you have it. That's obviously uh, pretty well known 30 years later, but... Uh, this, yeah. this I will say, though, this the Kamala debut just feels completely out of nowhere compared to like, oh, yeah. I was the usual newcomer build. It's like, fucking hell. Like, oh, by the way, here's Kamala. So it's kind of weird, too, because so we mentioned Whippleman loses Sid, so he needs something to do. That Undertaker Berserker program doesn't last. It, do you think this was kind of an emergency 11th hour call? Uh, I would not be surprised if that's the case, considering that they were about to lose a couple more names on the old depth chart. Yeah, and I knew this is news that's going to really upset you. Colonel Mustafa and the Warlord were both fired. Uh, Mustafa, before Mania, took a vicious squash against The Undertaker. <laughs> Just incredible fashion. It lasted, what, five seconds? Why well, take it straight in, thrust to the throat, lift you up, Tombstone. See you later. I kind of liked it. I love it. That's how you take a guy out of the territory, Kyle. Yeah, and then The Warlord, who was set to be suspended, you know why. Uh, apparently he had his gear stolen from his hotel in Winnipeg. My God, what about the W staff? <laughs> That's not a lot shown up on eBay. 
I, I'm surprised it hasn't. Somebody in Winnipeg is, ro- is running around with the Warlords. Did it, was it ever gotten back? I don't know. But yeah, so his gear gets stolen in Winnipeg. He's about to be suspended. And then it, adios to the Warlord. Uh, certainly a guy with that look wasn't going to last with the most stringent steroid testing mm-hmm. in all of sports or entertainment. No. A couple follow-ups to some names we previously talked about on our show. Uh, Val and Tony Puccio. Yeah. Yeah. Two, guy, guys who, two guys who would not be uh, suspended for reasons to do with their physiques. No, but uh, they, of course, were the guys who got that settlement for being the original Undertakers on the indie scene. They worked some more house shows as Double Trouble. And what was their reward? They lost to the Bushwhackers. <laughs> That's unbelievable that that was like, what a couple marks, man. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll book you. Yeah. Fucking book job you. to the Bushwhackers. They no, could have gotten a lot more money. Oh man, they 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 missed their their opportunity there. Uh, speaking of more money, Del Wilkes, aka the Patriot, we had talked about this a few months ago, or not a well, it, it, the negotiations were a few months ago. It was a few episodes ago we had talked about it. He backed out of his WWF deal and he's going to work all Japan instead. Yeah, and and, and you know, money probably had a lot to do with that. And that was the other thing too, like top talent had places to go. Like it wasn't like if if you were a guy like a Steve Williams, Doctor Death, that you could get a gig in japan with guaranteed money you're gonna take it because why wouldn't you <laughs> well you talk about a guy who will take a deal anywhere he could get it uh the retriever yeah. aka roadblock got dark match tryouts at the tv tapings in syracuse and glenn falls managed by the genius dave hmm. said he looked terrible <laughs> Uh, speaking of looking terrible, the genius worked a few matches in his time period wearing an outfit that made him look like the Riddler. <laughs> Have you ever seen photos of that? I've not. Is it, okay. Are there photos? I think there is. Oh, okay, I gotta find okay. it. Uh, PN News was also backstage on April 7th looking for a job, but thankfully he was sent back to the unemployment line. Fuck me, how's it come to this? Yeah, your point, by the way, about Dr. Death and, and others was well taken. That, you know, Japan was you know, just a better option than being part of this slop. Uh, <laughs> Perry Saturn, a name that would come to prominence years later, he worked uh, a TV taping as a jobber named Peter Watts, reported Dave <laughs> Meltzer. Uh, Dave saying it's probably a rib on Bill, but it turns out Dave had the name wrong. He worked as Peter Motts. Yes. Peter. But the Mott. first sighting of Perry Saturn on WF TV. Yes, yes. No Moppy, however. No, sadly. Got some odds and ends to get to, I guess, Liam, as we we, uh, do. we move away from the TV here and uh, talk about what's going on behind the scenes at Titan Sports. Always a fun look. As always, there's, there's plenty going on. And of course, this is going to uh, wrap up our wrestling portion of the program. But uh, odds and ends, the WF lost another court case. Um, they, they have not had the best record of these <laughs> recently. Uh, this time over paying taxes in New Jersey that were owed after SummerSlam 89 and the two WrestleManias at Trump Plaza. <laughs> Imagine that. The WWF had argued <laughs> that the New Jersey law, which allows the commission the right to tax a percentage of all international television revenue from any event that emanates from the state of New Jersey, what a hustle that is, uh, they said it was a violation of freedom of speech? <laughs> I, I don't know what they're going with with that. Uh, how? Freedom of speech? I don't know. I mean, it's pretty, you know... Let me dip my hand in your pocket. I'm not saying that it's like, you know, something that I think is a great uh, rule, but a violation of a freedom of speech? Vince loves to cite that First Amendment. Americans love to cite the First Amendment. Yeah, I don't think this was a violation of WWE's freedom of speech. No, 
No. In addition, they also complained that the New Jersey regulations were too strict for an entertainment event, which is probably actually the more, you know, prudent way to go, I would think. Yes. Uh, so the top amount that can be taxed is $100,000 on a show that grosses $9.5 million or more. And underneath that, the amount decreases with the less that the show draws. The hilarious part is that the WWF claimed that they actually didn't owe the full 100 grand because they somehow made less than $9.5 million per show. This despite publicly bragging on several occasions <laughs> that each show had made upwards of $20 million. Uh, the argument <laughs> includes WrestleMania 5, widely believed to be the highest grossing wrestling show in history. Love that note. I mean, the goal of everyone involved. The New Jersey Athletic Commission of the WWF, a match made in heaven, right? It really is. Uh, Animal, okay. Uh, we talked about Rocco. Uh, almost as embarrassing as that uh, was him being sued for supposedly beating up some guy at a bar in 1989. Uh, and that guy's lawyer... Uh, who he be allegedly beat up, he was unable to determine Animal's real name and just listed, quote, Animal Legion of Doom on the paperwork. Uh, again, <laughs> I, again, sure, this was less embarrassing for Joe Laurinaitis than Rocco was, uh, but you want to talk embarrassing. How about Steve Planamenta addressing <laughs> this uh, lawsuit? Quote, uh, so he had this to say about Animal. He and Hawk are both terrific. They're great guys. People love them. As a matter of fact, today they're up in New York speaking to kids at a school about drugs and the D.A.R.E. program. <laughs> yeah. doesn't, say that, doesn't say that Hawk was telling them not to do drugs. He's just talking to them about them. The D.A.R.E. program. Yeah. He probably, yeah. <laughs> oh, what a rush. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't tell the kids what that means. Yeah. Now, now, of course, WF's legal eagle, Jerry McDevitt, uh, was admitted to the Connecticut bar so that he can officially practice law in that state and specifically defend Vincent Mann and Pat Patterson in the Murray Hodson trial that they're expecting to take place uh, in the near future after some yeah. of the shenanigans that have been going on that we talked about previously. Yeah, and, you know, we're moving away from this here because we know what the reality is, that Hodgson was lying and he was full of shit, but obviously at the time they didn't know he was full of shit, although Dave's spider sense was i guess kind of tingling and he was like well somebody's lying here because yeah. it, it's quite open and shut so there was a lot of uh you know space in the observer dedicated to this murray hodgson deal but we don't really need to go into much detail because as we know he was full of shit so yep. there we go a couple of old matches with mel phillips doing ring announcing on did air on primetime wrestling <sighs> oh, my goodness former ring boy tom cole of course we talked about him uh a lot in our last episode he claimed this is a precursor to wwf bringing mel back into the fold dave initially thinks this was just a conspiracy theory from tom cole but given that the wwf never does stuff by accident and it's now been three weeks straight with phillips featured in old matches that old spider mm. sense is tingling again now as you know, there was a provision in Cole's contract that neither Garvin nor Phillips could ever be rehired. Nothing about Pat Patterson, interestingly enough. But nothing ever came of this Phillips deal, uh, you know, with the old matches airing with him on commentary. But where's the quality control? Jesus Christ. This is this is either, I mean, look at this one or two ways. This is either an unusual oversight for a company that had a reputation at the time for being very careful about their television, or there may have been something to the spidey sense going off from Dave where 
this is this is an unusual thing to do in light of everything that's come out. God, you would think that, you know, somebody would yell about this. I mean, Vince yeah. was doing primetime wrestling at this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although the matches were taped, it's not like he was sitting there watching them with the round table, I'm sure. So, yeah, I don't know about this. This is, uh, yeah, feels dicey to me. Yeah. Feels dicey. But thankfully, Mel Phillips was never brought back and never heard from again until the wrestling classics message board. Yeah. <laughs> Great guy. Great yeah. guy. Super rich, super successful. Um, yeah. New Japan. All my kids love him. <laughs> <laughs> they call him Uncle Mel. Uncle Mel. Or whatever that was. God, that's unbelievable. Oh, amazing. Check out the last episode for more on that. <laughs> so speaking of Japan, obviously you mentioned before about wrestlers going over there to earn their pay. Well, New Japan still wants Hulk Hogan and they're using Brian Blair uh, <laughs> as the go-between. Uh, Hulk Hogan, seeing the opportunity, asking for a hundred, excuse me, $150,000 per match. <laughs> I don't just blame you for stumbling there. That's quite an asking price. $150,000. And, you know, this is one of the big talking points throughout the rest of 92. When is Hulk coming back? Negotiations with New Japan. Is he going to work the Tokyo Dome show in January? We'll have more on this uh, as time wears on. Uh, something that is not wearing on, though, is Hulk Hogan's vitamin company, Liam, uh, declaring bankruptcy. <laughs> At one point, was the fourth highest selling children's vitamin, but it is no more in the wake of the several scandals we discussed last time. Kyle. Yep. Chew on something else, pal. <laughs> uh, Kyle, you're a father. I am. Do you uh, purchase child's vitamins? Is this, a, is this still a big market? Yeah, we have something. Uh, you know, the Cammy usually gets them ready in the morning, gets the kids ready in the morning. But we do have like these chewables. That, yes, yeah. we do. Not okay. Hulk Hogan's. No, no. Well, that's, that's It'd be odd to be eating thirty-year-old vitamins. I don't think that would make. Uh, I don't think that would get them ready for school or anything like that. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just curious when you know, Hulk Hogan fourth highest selling. I wouldn't have thought. I mean, that's actually quite an impressive statistic when you think about it. There's probably quite a few of these, uh, you know, going around in the shops. Hogan oh, yeah, well. for sure. Yeah, I mean, that was like a big thing. I mean, the Flintstones was the big one. Ah, Everyone okay. Had that. Like, Flintstones, that, that had to be, like, number one. I don't I don't know. To be honest, I didn't take a lot of fucking vitamins. I like fast food. <laughs> okay? I didn't eat a lot of vitamins when I was a kid, okay? That's why I, you know, have, you know, skinny arms and a beer gut right now, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's closed. Real sad. Now, those of you who are uh, looking to your vitamins for health, you won't be able to look for George Zahorian either because Dr. Zahorian is talking to you. It's about the dangerous effects of steroids as part of his punishment, says Dave Meltzer. Uh, Dave, however, notes that the worst effect that you can get is jail time for distributing. <laughs> That's a great Meltzer line. Um, another uh, story we need to uh, call back to. The guys who beat the shit out of the Nasty Boys a few months ago were declared guilty of battery and, quote, mob action. They'll be sentenced on June 30th. I don't know whatever happened to them, but. Uh, no. Maybe if yeah. they were, maybe if the Nasties were black, they would have gotten away with it. Yeah, there you go. There we go. Yeah, it probably would have been. Yeah. Well, Christ, well, they, well, they, they get sentenced on a, at the end of the month here. Roddy Piper, who we haven't talked about at all, but is obviously gone. He's still in the open for superstars, but he's, he's not really appeared uh, on television all that much since WrestleMania if, at all. Uh, they did advertise the Piper's Pit with Savage, um, but I'm not sure I've seen. 
But uh, yeah, that's the uh, that, that's pretty. Well, much we talked about how they have done those shitty pipers where they were shit. Where like he they like taped them before Mania, maybe. Yeah, they did, and they were like right. trying to like, rip on Geraldo. Remember? Yeah, yeah. Like it was all about like, can you uh, spot the liar? They did something with the Brooklyn fucking brawler. Oh God, that's right, that's right. I, I've, I've not seen that, so I can I cannot speak yeah, to did. how yeah. awful that sounds, but. But, yeah, I've never. I, I don't think that ever aired. I, I don't know if there's any footage of that. Yeah, that's weird because, like I said, they did. They did advertise that they were going to wear it, and then they just never saw it. But uh, Piper did film an episode of the TV show Superboy, um, whatever that is. Uh, when the star of the show on the set asked Piper if wrestling matches were fixed, he said that all the prelim matches were, but there was too much money involved in the main events to get the guys to take a dive. Uh, Lex Luger was on the same show last year when he was asked the same question he said that what he was doing on the show was just like pro wrestling except in pro wrestling they don't have retakes <laughs> Roddy Piper <laughs> this guy is truly one of the all timers let's just read that all the prelim matches were faked but there was too much money involved in the main events to get guys to take a dive That that's, that's real playground logic i feel again there's people trying to convince themselves that uh you know certain stuff's <laughs> legit that's 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 a good i mean piper did you ever see when he was on there was it oh fuck what the, sh- the show and do it bill bill uh what the the, the talk show host oh bill Maher, bill Maher, bill Maher. bill Maher. Yeah, yeah. correct politically correct yes 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 did, did you ever see piper on that yes yes i did that was fantastic yes. when he just yeah, drops that... his pants <laughs> yes I, he, he was so hot and cold during this period and you referenced Vince McMahon announcing the return of Piper's Pit. That was on the April 11th, 92 Superstars. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, nothing ever comes of it. It didn't actually air, I don't think, because I never saw no. it. No, so the April 18th one is on Peacock or the network. And, yeah, that's not on there. So uh, very odd that uh, uh, what, what was going on with Roddy Piper in addition to lying about um, prelim matches. Well, no, he wasn't lying about the prelim matches. He was lying about main event matches. Yes. That there's too much. Got to protect. Got to protect the business. This great business. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm still laughing about your lying about the nasty boys and if they were African American. <laughs> that was a good callback to the uh, yes, the Rodney King discussion earlier on. Uh, what a fucking piece of shit. Dude. That's fucking oh, I know. U.S. jurisprudence. Anyway, uh, speaking about questionable, uh, we... Paul Roma in an interview. Uh, with a newsletter, said that Jim Powers was going to blow the whistle on sexual harassment Mm. against him. So they put Roma and Powers together and gave them a push to shut him up. And then later on, Roma got hit on by, quote, a top official. And had he accepted, Power and Glory would have been tag team champions. You should have gone for it, Paul. I can't. I'm sorry. I actually, I did a bit of research on this. Okay. Uh, Paul Roma, I, I dug out some clips of Paul. Um, I say dug out like I did a lot of work. I did. I just searched it on YouTube. But yeah. um, he at one point refers to Jim Powers as Pat's candy ass, um, whatever that means, um, and says that he was, you know, um, approached by them, turned it down, was about to blow the whistle, and I can't remember who it was that stuck up for Powers. It was quite a big name, as I remember, but I can't remember who it was. Uh, anyway, point being, Roma says that he was at Pat Patterson's house when he received the uh, proposition and was kind of told, if you do this, if you, you know, play ball with a certain executive, you will get what you want. Do you understand what I'm saying, Paul? Um, 
and you, I don't know if Roma actually said that he was talking about himself, but uh, Roma interpreted that he was Patterson that he was talking about. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, there, there, there you go. So, um, you know, if we, we said we were scandal-free, not entirely scandal-free, but the, no. the, 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 because it's still hanging over the thing. And, yeah, I mean, Paul Roma's boxing career uh, <laughs> down the toilet, so he's just going <laughs> to let it all hang loose. I have looked this up as you were speaking about Piper's pits here in 92. The one with the Brooklyn Brawler was apparently on that WWF unreleased DVD, 86 to 95. That is on oh, YouTube. Oh, okay. And there's also a Piper's Pit uh, with Shawn Michaels from April 29th that you can find on uh, if, if you Google. If you just Google Piper's Pit 92, it's not on YouTube, but uh, it's out there on the internet. So there are some of these un, you know these unaired Piper's Pits that do air, but it did not obviously become a regular piece of WWF weekly programming because he wasn't going to stick nope. around. He was done. Uh, okay. Something that else is not going to stick around. <laughs> and finally, we get to bid adieu to this. We got to do this justice, man. We've been going for two and a half hours. So buckle your seatbelts, everybody. Because we, we got go. to get to the WBF. And finally, good riddance to bad rubbish. Liam. So this WBF show that McMahon has spent nearly a year building up, despite all signs it would be a disaster, falls victim to an almost comical series of events. We start with Lou Ferrigno. He was supposed to be the marquee star, but he quit after it was announced there'd be stringent steroid testing. Publicly, Ferrigno claimed he needed operations on both hands due to pain from carpal tunnel syndrome. That was a lie. It was because of the steroid <laughs> testing. He, uh, I mean, he, he may have very well have been dealing with carpal tunnel, but, uh, you know, obviously he said that, you know, he couldn't do it drug-free. McMahon would later admit that losing Ferrigno was a big blow to the promotion. And as you mentioned the last show, Lou Ferrigno was actually originally talked about as being a ref for Hogan and Justice at WrestleMania yeah. 8 to kind of segue into this WBF. Yeah, well... Lou, the Incredible Hulk, for those of you who don't know who, what that name is, I'm sure most of you do, but um, I guess the pay-per-view is supposed to be built around Ferrigno versus Gary Stridham was the original yes. idea. And, uh, well, that's now out the window. We just do know the competition. Who cares? Um, <laughs> now, McMahon, I love this. This is amazing. McMahon tells Dave Meltzer about a meeting he had with the bodybuilders, telling them that his, you know, telling them his goal and that they would be steroid tested like the wrestlers. And he went into some detail about the meeting in his description to Dave, including what he told the bodybuilders and what their reservations were about suddenly not being the biggest guys in the gym anymore. And this turned out to be one of the great McMahon stories of all time. The meeting that McMahon tells Meltzer about in November of 91 did happen. And it went pretty much exactly as he said it did, except it didn't happen in November of 91. <laughs> It happened in February, late February of 1992. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Thing, it's unbelievable. The funny thing was that all the questions Vince said the bodybuilders brought up were brought up when the real meeting took place, almost all of them by his top star, Gary Stridham. Uh, this wasn't the world's greatest acting job either, uh, according to Meltzer <laughs> says. Uh, since the bodybuilding magazines at the time, with no knowledge that McMahon had likely scripted much of the meeting, said that it appeared to some of the bodybuilders that Stridham's questions were planted. Fucking great. That is unbelievable. Hey, Dave, are you okay? This It's just lying about a, a scripted meeting. I love that. I That's love it. I, wow. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. 
I, I, I've spoken to pretty good authorities in the bodybuilding world about the WBF. And yeah. Their opinion on Vince as a carny is just like he's he thinks that he's clever, he thinks he's a big shot, and he doesn't realize how small he is in the real world of sleaze and con men. And if you want to find out where you stand in the world of sleaze, bodybuilding is the world for you. <laughs> so yeah. uh, Vince, you know, wasn't exactly a threat to Mr. Weeder. No, he wasn't. And I'll tell you what, uh, the WBF pay-per-view wasn't exactly a threat to uh, WrestleMania five either, <laughs> because it has to be moved from the 12,000-seat convention center in Long Beach to the 2,700-seat Terrace Theater down the street. Rumors! Only 600 tickets had been sold for the June 13th pay-per-view. So rivaling that that show. show we <laughs> talked about earlier. Maybe that, like, maybe that was just the reward. You know, you get that instead since we're canceling the show. Um, Meltzer, <laughs> another great one here. The reason, of course, for changing the location was that the threat of a series of Martians who had set their sights on the original site to magically cause green ooze to come out of the various different body parts of the different bodybuilders. Luckily, Titan officials mysteriously got advance warning of the Martian raid as they seemingly do on all raids by outside agencies. Oh, oh my goodness, Mr. Meltzer. Uh, and are going to trick the inhabitants of our solar system's fourth planet by moving the site down the street. The weak advance was just a figment of the imagination of those who were taking tickets, and a new magic spell has been cast on the ticket office to forget how slow the sales have been. That, of course, is a wonderful play on uh, what happened with WrestleMania 7 and those terrorist threats that people like Bruce Pritchard like to cite. Um, as well as Jack Krill, I believe, tipping off Linda on the Azahorian raid. Yes, yes. So we've got all sorts of things. That was good stuff. Now, look. All signs are that this is going to bomb spectacularly, okay? We're moving from a 12,000-seat building to a 2,700-seat building, and only 600 tickets have been reportedly sold. Nevertheless, the WF continues on its weekend shows to hype up this bodybuilding pay-per-view as being sold out. This is news to everyone in L.A. who is getting free tickets or has no problem finding them. While numbers are not official yet, it is estimated that about two-thirds of those in attendance will be freebies and or comps, Dave is pretty sure Vince is not going to pull a rabbit out of his hat to save this one. Not Dave's most bold prediction. I'll give him that. I'll say that much. No. But, uh, yeah. I'm not a ton of not a ton of interest in bodybuilding. I'm no. Kind of surprised. No. What? And, and we'll get to the show in a minute. <laughs> I can't wait to hear your. I your, fucking your watched the full two hours yesterday. <laughs> I've been waiting for this. I'm waiting for this all show. So the new con that Vince is running before we get to that is to have the bodybuilders and the wrestlers claim to be steroid free so he can sell this new IcoPro stuff to teenagers. The idea beat the idea being that if you use it, you get bodies like the WBF slash WWF guys. Uh, speaking of IcoPro, later in the year it was reviewed in a supplement buyer's guide, and the review basically called the whole thing a huge scam filled with double speak like integrated conditioning. Uh, in an incredible story, how it is late revealed that the magazine covering IcoPro is also a fraud and also shady, their debut issue being Volume 2, Issue 3, and quoting doctors that don't exist. 
This is just, like I say, Vince's low level in this world. That's unbelievable. So you have Ico Pro, which is clearly just a bottle of bullshit with integrated <laughs> conditioning, and it's being called out as bullshit by a fucking magazine full of fake doctor quotes calling its debut issue volume two, issue three. <laughs> unbelievable. Oh, I love it. Sadly, that review does not stop the WF from presenting future house shows as, quote, Ico Pro presents the World Wrestling Federation. Gotta want it. Yeah, you gotta want it. So, remember how Lex Luger was supposed to save the WBF, Liam? Hmm. Well, despite attempts to keep it quiet, Luger suffers a serious, uh, serious injuries in a motorcycle accident. Yeah. Uh, He had just bought the bike and got uh, hit and run. By a car. He's in the hospital till June 15th, and he's gonna be unable to attend the WF pay per view that he's supposed to save. Are we sure he didn't just drive into something <laughs> just to get out of this thing? I, I don't know. If I were him, I would have just kept driving, to be honest with you. <laughs> never stopped. <laughs> Luca's motorcycle accident doesn't appear to have ended his career. Although for a while, things were not looking good, says Dave. He suffered torn knee ligaments, a crushed elbow, a torn groin, and torn ab muscles. Uh, Dr. Andrews, who performed three different operations on the arm to save it, told Luger that he almost lost the use of it completely. Uh, Since he can't legally wrestle for Titan until March of 93, no reason to rush back. Yeah, and of course, you know, they would... Uh, use this motorcycle accident as the, you know, the steel plated forearm. They would yeah. turn it into a gimmick when he came back. But yeah, so, you know, Lex's dual role is a, a no go here. Um, and <laughs> so that, so again, so, you know, no Luger, we're switching buildings. Nobody cares. No Hulk. Top, no, no incredible yeah, Hulk. No Lou Ferrigno. And on top of all that, Vince McMahon uh, is. <laughs> claiming the WBF is setting the standard for drug-free sports competition. Dave calls it, quote, maybe the greatest example of gall ever by this organization. (laughs) And it turns out 10 of the 13 competitors failed their first (laughs) test, were suspended, and then the suspensions were lifted just so they could participate in the contest. (laughs) Oh, thank God for that. (laughs) <laughs> so welcome to the WBF interview where we have three bodybuilders. Yeah, can you imagine it's just out of three guys? Yeah. So Sid made eventing WrestleMania 8. <laughs> WBF full roster gets to do it, even though we've got the most stringent steroid testing ever. So, you know, what did Dave have to say about the WBF show, Liam? Well, he was sadly unable to provide a report on the show because the cable company canceled the showing due to a lack of interest. <laughs> oh my. Now the next line, the next line may be my favorite note on the whole show. Dave can only find two people who even watch the show, and neither of them said they paid any attention to it. Why the fuck would you order? Why would you buy it then? Uh, the show was an incredible bomb, uh, says Dave Meltzer, doing possibly the lowest buy rate in the history of pay-per-view. Even lower than Herb Abrams' UWF Beach Brawl, which is uh, saying something. Just 3,000 buys. And I've seen reports that this was the 2,200 uh, buys that we've, we've scoffed at in the past. But uh, okay. 
3,000 by. So it, it, maybe the first one was 2,200, and this one they really, they really, all that TV time really spiked the buy rate. Yeah, I can't um, remember. So I was going through, I think it was amended to 3,000. I looked at like stuff in the future that like David Bixon's fan wrote about it and stuff. Mm. And I feel we can just round up to 3,000. Regardless, not many fucking people ordered this yeah. show. If you're getting sub 3,000 buys, the pay per view in 1992, you ought to be fucking ashamed of yourself. <laughs> yeah, when you are willingly happy to round up a WWF attendance or, or buy rate number and it's still less than five figures you know it didn't do very well the pay-per-view did open with a tape lex luger interview uh, which they claimed was live from his hospital bed very nice yeah wbf was... on pay-per-view by the way since you watched this did you catch the sky sports logo in the top right corner yes yeah, so you guys got to watch this for free i guess well <laughs> it was broadcast for free. I can't say that we watched it for free, okay. but it was aired. I couldn't believe that it aired. Okay. It's I watched this fucking pay-per-view yesterday, <laughs> and I got to say something, okay? So I had it on in the afternoon. My daughter was in the other room. Thankfully, she never walked in here to the office. Okay, I'm watching this thing. <laughs> and it was funny. Later in the day, I was in the worst mood. And I thought it was because I had lost both my Champions League bets. In the afternoon, <laughs> okay? But I'm, like, thinking later, I'm like, God, and, like, I kept seeing the cameo. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm just in a pissy mood right now, and I don't know why. And then it hit me, and I'm like, it was that fucking WBF pay-per-view. <laughs> it ruined my day. It was, I don't think I've ever spent two hours watching something that was so bad. Like, I was trying to think of a movie that would be, like, this horrific, and I couldn't think of one. Like, I've watched some bad movies before, but at least you could have fun making fun of it. Yeah, yeah. This, <laughs> I wanted to go back in time and just fight 1992 Vince McMahon for putting this on. But I've <laughs> lost that fight, sure. But this was a, tro- like, anyone would watch this now and say, why would one person have tuned into this? <laughs> it was, the, it, the complete thing is on YouTube folks and it has to be seen to be believed first of all the luger interview which opens the show is absolutely atrocious by the way he's in playgirl around this time as well he is um, yes they do it that you must not because i know you actually god bless your soul tuned it out unless if it was a fake playgirl was mm. it a, but they, they do this photo shoot late in the show where he's posing what was did, did they get me with this fake because they did a fake sports illustrated cover of bo knows lex because they, you know, there's the famous Sports Illustrated cover where Bo Jackson's, you got the shoulder pads and holding a baseball bat, talking about his dual, uh, you know, uh, role, you know, playing football, pro football, pro Devis, baseball yeah. at the time. Yeah. And Luger, it's like Bo knows Lex because he was doing a dual role here and he's holding up a bat and it's a similar thing. I don't want this being part of my browser search history. <laughs> yeah. Every vignette they aired of these, because the whole thing was we're going to do like WWF. For bodybuilding and everyone's gonna have like a character they're gonna have this introductory vignette before they come out posing every single one of these vignettes was atrocious <laughs> there was one where you know talking about something that would never air today a guy came out with like a machine gun just shooting fake people in the like security guards in the audience oh yes major guns eddie robinson yes. i think the playgirl might have been fake it's, it surely was. Because it, because it's also after the Time Magazine Man of the Year and Sports Illustrated. So I think they got me here. So Okay, but he the thing is, they show him doing this posing where he's got, like, no clothes on. Oh, God, yeah, with a sheet over him. 
Yeah, which you would take for like a Playgirl shoot. That's why I actually like bought. I was like, wait, was he really in it? Okay, but so th- that was, I guess that was a fake. But who fucking gives a shit? Because this WBF show was absolutely atrocious. It starts with Vince McMahon doing Royal Rumble style intros for all the competitors. <laughs> that couldn't save it. Bobby Heenan on commentary could save it. Bobby is doing his routine. Picks every guy to win. <laughs> he picks every guy to win, and it gets real old real quick. By the way, um, you could tell Heenan was phoning it in, and he gets called on it because Vince McMahon's like, at one point, the show goes, yes, as we said, this is Bobby Heenan's first time commentating bodybuilding. Like, really? <laughs> and then uh, who's the bodybuilding expert? Tom, Tom Platt. Platt. Yeah, at one point, he says, Mike Quinn looking a little softer than last year. <laughs> yeah. There were both LAPD and cocaine jokes during the pay-per-view. I can go for the latter. So I believe it was Barry DeMay. His gimmick was that he was a ladies' man, but, like, the girl, like, sprinkled a little something in his drink. And I think Bobby Heenan actually said this point, I thought this was a drug-free pay-per-view. That might have been the only funny part to watch this, but, like I said, this was quite possibly the worst thing to ever air on television, and it's so funny. I think about this and you know, Vince always wanted to de-emphasize the wrestling, right? It was these just larger than life personalities. This WBF pay-per-view was proof positive that you actually need wrestling to make this work. Because this was, if you take the wrestling out of wrestling, what do you have? You have the WBF 1992 championships. This was fucking abysmal and the worst thing I've ever watched in my life. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So I, I have to say, I did take great amusement, not in the show, but in doing a bit of research, in looking around some bodybuilding circles for reviews on the show. Because again, I was looking for information about the bodybuilders. I was just looking to see if there's any funny stories, anything amusing, or even just a, you know, a morbid story about the, the rate of, of how many of these people are still alive. There were people on some of these forums who, because they're bodybuilding forums, seem to be quite excited by this. What? They were like, I'm actually really sad that Vince didn't get to expand his, you know, this vision of bodybuilding to make it more mainstream. And they're asking, seriously, the question of, why didn't this take? (laughs) And I was like... Okay, so I sat down. Oh my god! And as I told you, Vince McMahon's fawning over these guys. Oh, so bad! It's so nauseating, and it's just, especially Gary Stridham. Oh my goodness! Look at this majesty! I think I'm too sexy for the stage. (laughs) He may be too sexy for the stage. He may be. Oh, yeah. Gary Stratton's vignettes where he's talking to the troubled youths, by the way. You talk about it has to be seen to be believed. Yeah, this this was such a hit with the Tonka. Yes. Let's get Stratton to duplicate it. 
it's yeah so obviously it's heinous anybody knows that you know no one wants to watch this but when you actually see this show it's it's funny how remarkably low rent it feels like when yes. eddie robinson is like doing his initial thing where like you say he's shooting people the camera cuts to the crowd as there's people running through and you can just see the empty seats like yes. and this isn't in the in like the bleachers this is like in the front rows like people running around there's just empty seats around it's like the, the, the crowd noise just sounds like there's like six women drunk women on a hen night screaming wildly for anybody and then like just a bunch of like scattered you know uninterested applause none of these people got over and like yeah Tom Platt oh this guy's great and you know it was just it was so sad he did it at the start was like they're hanging off the rafters and while Vince was able to feign enthusiasm for the actual posing he just had the look like the most defeatist look at the start of this pay-per-view mm, like yeah. he's looking at the audience he's like my god nobody cares no one is here and no one is buying this um something else i caught uh you talk about sky sports what a horrible wwf commercial they had the fucking batman graphics yes so this is funny i was making fun of a few months ago the phony wwf WWE violence in the modern product. I was ripping on uh, the Extreme Rules pay-per-view, and I said for some of these matches, they might as well have, like, bam, wham, like those bubbles coming out during these matches. And I know a listener of this show, Rick Skelton, brought up that they used to do that. WCW Worldwide? Yes. Yeah. But they did it here, too. (laughs) They did. Wham, splat. Uh, Sean Moody somehow got roped into this WBF pay-per-view and interviewed the losers after they announced the five finalists. He, like, comes in, and it is so awkward interviewing the eight guys that lose, and they're all like, I'll be back. Like, one guy was doing a Terminator gimmick on it. This this was so shitty. I just can't think of anything I've ever watched that was worse than this pay-per-view. <laughs> yeah, we've seen some pretty awful stuff. Um, but, I, I mean, this, this makes the WWF television of April, June, like, look like... You know, 1997 WWE by comparison. Again, it's on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing. Um, you know, people should... Ruin you know, your day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but people should go, like, when we post this show or whatever uh, on the Facebook page. I'd love to see people's comments on this <laughs> WBF paper because it was just such a pile of dog shit. Thankfully. Thankfully. It's, it's time to pull the plug on this horrible endeavor. Uh, of course, Body Stars is still airing on USA. Also, st- also available on YouTube, like every episode for some reason. Why would someone upload that? I get, com- <laughs> I did not bother watching those. You want to talk about the comments, by the way, on some of these things, folks? If you want any real enjoyment, go on the comments to some of these videos because there are some fantastic ones. Yes, but um, yeah, you know the, the TV rate, the pay per view numbers weren't good, and neither of the TV ratings are they? Leo, no, the the, the, the TV show Body Stars shockingly down to a 0.4 rating uh, roughly the same thing as a test pattern gets according to dave Meltzer. um it has already been revamped into a spotlight on cameo whatever the, how you say that name um uh, who's the female co-host with vince <laughs> and she and was brought out at the pay-per-view and like looked like she didn't have a fucking clue what she was talking about no not an idea perfect talks about her a lot on the uh, on, on the tv um now focus on her wearing bathing suits and trying to sell the show as a fitness lifestyle show uh, as opposed to marketing their actual you know, stars, in quotes. Uh, this this advert does run quite a bit, uh, f- with Vincent Mann belting out the words, health and fitness, hanging and banging, 
riding and sliding, food and fun, fashion and passion. You, he was so fired up for that, you know. He, he was. loves this. And nobody fucking watched this show. God, the the amount of time they promoted this pay-per-view and stupid fucking body stars. What are we doing? I mean, I guess it's not like they're taking away from a lot of great angles that are airing, but still. um, Despite the pay-per-view bombing, body stars, no one watching it, it is said that Vince McMahon is still 100% behind the whole bodybuilding concept. (laughs) But a lot of the wrestlers were pretty thrilled that the show was such a bomb because hopefully it'll convince Vince to drop the idea and concentrate on wrestling again. And this is where we must insert Bret Hart's comments (laughs) on this entire endeavor. Uh, I think he summed it up best. Anytime we get to hear Bret lay down the truth, I'm a happy man. So yes, let's take it now to the hitman for his thoughts on WBF and bodybuilders in general. When the bodybuilding thing started, it was, here's these bodybuilders, and who, who likes bodybuilders? I mean, talk about it, zeros in life, you know, I mean, there's nothing, I can't say anything good about bodybuilders at all, what a total waste of your life. To, to the point of being obsessed and like bodybuilders and the dieting and the, you know, the whole thing is like, who cares? Like, I, I don't see any ability or skill in it at all. And they really, you know what, nobody cared. Talk about about your zeros in life. That is from his uh, kayfabe commentaries covered in 1992 with Sean Oliver. The WBF, oh, you you talk about the WBF magazine, Liam. I don't want to steal your thunder. I know you want to talk about its demise. Don't worry. The WBF magazine was shut down effective immediately. Not exactly the 100% behind the whole bodybuilding concept that we heard in the previous notes, but as as we learn in business, you you, you pretend that everything's great until the day you close. Remember, it was getting less prominent position at the newsstands, too. I believe it's used to clean up the pigeon mess uh, around the other magazines at this point. Uh, The actual reasoning given by the press release is that the the magazine was perceived as a barrier to a more cooperative relationship between the different organizations within the industry. Hmm. Uh, Dave likens this move to WCW, suddenly announcing that they're suspending their TV shows so that the talent can all work together in other organizations. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So Steve Planamento... I mean, if there's a guy to be brought in to try to to spin this, it's old Steve. And he he spins the shutdown of the magazine as a positive and stress that there's nothing else going on with the WBF right now. Of course, the facts undermine that since multiple quote-unquote stars of the promotion have quit. And word within the WBF is that the company strictly exists now to sell Ico Pro and fulfill its TV contract for body stars. The Weeder Group has graciously offered to take back anyone who previously quit, provided they pay a $25,000 fine and sit out for a year. Yeah, so I believe that there was a point, uh, I think we talked about this previously, where on some IFBB show, uh, the Weeder Group, they had the names of the guys who had jumped to the WBF on tombstones, and then Mm -hmm. somebody, somebody broke them with a sledgehammer. So apparently on a show shortly after this, they did a show where the tombstones had the, the name still there and they came out of the ground back to life and returned to the IFBB. Good Lord. Yeah. So shitty pageantry, <laughs> not just limited to the World Bodybuilding Federation. Yeah. So the final issue of WBF magazine had a story on Lex Luger where he was acknowledged as a former world champion wrestler who got interested in wrestling after watching WrestleMania three in 1987 uh for those keeping score luke had already been wrestling for more than two years by then (laughs) 
that I mean, I mean, that is unbelievable. And you know, when you're gonna put shit, print shit like that, you deserve the following: a videotape convention in Las Vegas featured a Coliseum video display, and there was zero talk of the WBF. Apparently, Herb Abrams was there with Paul Orndorff and had big lineups, though. See, I'm telling you, Mister Wonderful was the answer. He might have been uh, still packing yeah. them in. Now, so they, yeah. The magazine's gone. No Coliseum video talk. The pay-per-view bombs. Let's put the let's put the TV show to rest now. Yeah, it's over. So, despite a televised tug of war versus the WWF wrestlers, the WBF dies. Now, I will say, have you seen the tug of war? Yes, I have. Uh, doesn't the WWF win? Well, how symbolic is that? <laughs> yeah. The bodybuilders can't beat fucking DiBiase and crew in a in a, in a, in a tug of war. Um, the Body Stars show will air the last few episodes to fill TV time, and then it will go away forever. Uh, no more pay-per-view shows will be produced. Uh, doing this whole idea amidst a steroid scandal was insane, but wrestling fans never gave a shit about bodybuilding anyway, let's be honest. Let me ask you a question. Was the WBF a worse idea than the XFL? Well, so it didn't cost as much as the XFL. I'll say that. Um, the WBF was a worse idea in concept. At least with the XFL, you can look at like a precedent, like the USFL and stuff like that. That mm-hmm. like, people people tried and they, they you, know, you theorize that maybe if they'd have done this a little differently, maybe if we had done that, you know, a springtime league. You know, we've we've had several attempts at that. Um, still are, yeah, yeah, still are, and I think that. At least if that was a god-awful idea, which it was, at least an execution, you could at least say that he's not the only person to have this god-awful idea. Whereas the WBF, he is the only person who's had this god-awful idea, and he had it at the worst possible time, with the worst implementation. Um, and it's just, again, it's not marketable. I, I, don't, I don't know why he thought it could be. As I, I think that the best way to sum this up is to actually quote you of all people, Kyle, when we first oh. talked when we first talked about the WBF, where you said if this pay for you was happening in my yard, I'd close the curtains. Yes, I mean bodybuilding. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's. Just, I'll say this re- relative to the XFL, it was a less high profile failure. Yeah, and it didn't cost as much. The thing with the XFL, and you've brought this up so many times through the years, the XFL. It's not just the financial cost that was sunk into it, but. That also cost Vince McMahon his reputation as a genius yes. to the public at large. This, I, I just feel like because people were tuning out wrestling, I, I think there's a lot of people that don't even know this happened. People, if you bring up the XFL, oh, people know to what that people, is. People know about. They're like, oh, I think that Vince McMahon tried and it failed, and now it's coming back or whatever. But you know, everyone associates it with Vince McMahon's failed attempt at a second football league. Whereas, if I brought up the WBF, I think to a lot of you know, people in my social circles, I think there's a good chance that 9 out of 10 of them don't even know what happened. And God bless them for it. Yeah, they're better than me. They didn't waste <laughs> an afternoon during the week watching this <laughs> fucking shit pay-per-view. Maybe you can send them the link and get their feedback. Yeah. Now, that tug of war took place on August 1st. So, again, we're going a little bit ahead. You know, we said well, this is April and June. That's when we stopped talking uh, WWF TV. But we obviously wanted to just put a bow on the WBF story. It is all over. It's funny. I, I think you mentioned it in maybe the first or second episode, kind of the beginnings uh, in 1990. And there was a, the first one 
remember Meltzer said, hey, you can't call it a failure. But this one was just a complete disaster. And it is over. And just what a piece of dog shit, really. I don't know what else to say. No, I mean, to be honest, it is everything you would expect this to be and nothing more and nothing less. It's Vince McMahon's hokey. Vince Vince is such a ham. And mm-hmm. that made that made for a great heel at first for the first few years when when it came time to be a ham, but here where like he's just he's forcing the over the top. It's one of those things where it's like Vince because Vince is a mark for it. He thinks that the world could just lo- would just love this. It's just it's entertainment, you know the mm-hmm. spectacle, the the pageantry. It's it's a form of entertainment. Not realizing that underneath all the pageantry and underneath all the dressing, there actually needs to be something entertaining at the core. Which I know is like tapping into the point you made about wrestling does need wrestling. But yes. like it's it, it's that that is Vince all over. And it comes down to the fact that the core thing is not interesting. It's nothing that the world's gonna be captivated by and love. There has to be some energy or excitement or something that is actually, you know, relatable. And what's what you know, Bret Hart said it best, you know. <laughs> yeah, he did. What, what, there's nothing special or interesting about it to the majority of the public, so why the fuck would they care? And they didn't. And you got you, know, you got to want it, and nobody did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, Ico Pro would still be a uh, fixture on WWF television for a long time. Do the thing, as Randy Savage would yell, <laughs> and then Ico Pro. Something that I think people are going to be interested in uh, moving forward is the rest of our 1992 series. Uh, our next several episodes, Liam, are going to all are, are going to begin with what I would term a reactionary booking move from Titan. So mm. it feels creatively we were very much at the nadir here. Yeah. yeah. And there are attempts to rectify that that we are going to explore, and we're going to explore even more going into 93 when we hit that year. But very interesting that each of the next several podcasts we do, there is going to be some big attempt to catch lightning in a bottle and really uh for the most part none of them work but uh, by god they're trying and i know the next time we convene it will be a uh, very special episode for many of the listeners uh, mm-hmm. because of uh you know what it you know obviously the first uk pay-per-view um and, and you'll be able to kind of give your own sort of personal uh take on that as someone yeah. who lived through that in, in your childhood looking forward to that that is going to be great. We are going to be tracking not just SummerSlam, the road to the show itself. Things do start changing. Uh, and we're going to see, like you say, a lot of that over the, over the coming months. So fantastic yeah. show. I cannot wait to talk more about 1992 because as we said, a lot of stuff that's kind of like in a dour note, but you look at why it was what it was. You can see that they're kind of acknowledging that it's not great either. And, and and those are the movies, the machinations behind what we see that are very interesting. So very excited to talk about the rest of 1992, because yeah. when it comes to intrigue, this year is far from done. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we basically for three hours just shit completely on every <laughs> idea Vince McMahon had for three months, and rightfully so. But I think moving forward, the ideas are at least interesting. And we'll, you know... And I think the people are going to enjoy hearing us talk about them and break down why most of them didn't work. But at least some of them were good, even if they didn't draw money. Yeah. So 
yeah, but that's next time. SummerSlam night. The road to Sun- the original plans change, pal. SummerSlam <laughs> 1992. That's right. The show you thought you'd never see. Yes. So uh, I think we did it, man. I think that's it. I think so too. I think that kind of puts a nice bow on everything. Scandals are pretty much done. The WBF's done. It's all about the WWF from here on in, and I am very much looking forward to reconvening with you, Kyle, to talk about the road to SummerSlam 1992 uh, as we talk about that. So I want to thank you so much for the three hours. Once again, another long session, not as long as before, but we did get this wrapped up in three. Um, so thank you very much, Kyle. Any, any closing words when you look back on this period of time, or are you happy to sign off? Uh, no, just people check out Top Rope Nation. Obviously, you know, you've done some work in that territory, Liam. Mm-hmm. It's always obliged when you can. Uh, you know, yes. we recently uh, did a show for patrons of Top Rope Nation. But, um, you know, I, I don't want to plug anything specifically because I don't know when this is coming out. And so I don't want to say, <laughs> yeah, tune in uh, next week for our next episode. But, you know, people should check out Top Rope Nation. Each and every episode uh, is outstanding. I think we do a good job covering not just wrestling in the past, but obviously wrestling in the present. Uh, so, yeah, myself, Ryan, and Justin uh, would love to have you. And we know many of you have migrated over there, and uh, we'd love to have even more of you. Absolutely. And I give my full floated endorsement to Mr. Drosty and Mr. Joint. Always uh, a pleasure to speak to those gentlemen as it always is with you as well. So I want to thank you very much. I want to thank everybody for listening. Join us again as we head on the road to SummerSlam 92 in Wembley Stadium. Thank you very much, everybody. And we'll speak to you again real soon. This ride is good. Wow, got the move.